Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast, episode 154. I'm Steve Smith, along with Greg Patton. So fortunate to have Greg as a guest. We are coming to you from Switzerland. Oh, actually, we're coming <laughs> to a place that reminds me of Switzerland, but from Wintergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, but Greg, great to have you on as a guest. Oh, thank you, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing this. I've, I've, got, yeah. some, I've got some notes here. Uh, you can tell me if I'm off, but lifelong journey in tennis, 70 years young, one day better than Jimmy Connors. You're born September 1, 1952, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 42 years as a college coach, 808 wins, coached at your alma mater, Santa Barbara, Irvine, yes. Boise State, yes. four-year hiatus from the college tennis, served as a national coach at the USTA, worked with Sampras, Courier, Chang, led U.S. team to World Cup championships, beating Spain and Argentina. Uh, Summers, coach World Team Tennis, Andy Roddick, Anna Kornikova, so many people we can ask you about, brought Davis <laughs> Cup to Boise, Idaho. Yeah. A lot of Hall of Fames, you remember many, but one is the College Tennis Hall of Fame. Um, I know the, um, the awards were handed out in Orlando. I saw you there with your wife at the National Tennis Center. I think you went in with Jim Verdict's son, Doug, Dave yes. Fish. Yeah. Um, the uh, international coaching event, in France, talk to you about that. All these awards, two-time national coach, five-time regional coach, 15 conference coach. These are coach of the year awards, 24 conference championships. Wow. What a journey. 21 NCAA appearances, 113 conference honors. Um, once your team was one side, two in the nation. Uh, wife, Krista, teaches French. I've done some homework here. Garrett, wow. I met Chelsea. I know Garrett played for you. He's Coach college tennis. I don't think he's currently doing that, but Chelsea, I met her. Yeah. I met her with your uh, brother-in-law, Steve Campbell, who's the director of Wintergreen. And she hadn't played in a couple of years. What great spirit she had. We went and watched her play in a qualifier. Um, she's working somewhere in sports administration. Coaching tree, we've got that down. We've got a lot of former students who coach college tennis. You're currently working as a volunteer in high school. I have that down. You have to tell me what I've got wrong here. Um you're traveling, doing camps, uh, motivational speaker for teams, businesses, and special interest groups. 70 years young. <laughs> How did you do? Is that some of that uh, on, on target? Woo, I forgot about a lot of those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've, been, I've been pretty blessed. I can't. This journey has been an unbelievable journey, and it's all because of just a childlike love for hitting the tennis ball, you know. And I, and I you, you really think about how – things that seem insignificant in terms of your life, how they can be so big and so powerful and, and really steer your ship. And, uh, you know, the, the main, and it's all luck and it's all, it's fate and it's almost kind of a spiritual gift. Uh, you know, I got into tennis because I was shot in the eye of the BB gun when I was a kid and, uh, my mother, and, you know, I'm the oldest of seven, and uh, my father's a sports writer and had played baseball in college. And uh, my mother, I'm the oldest, I, I can't hit a baseball, I can't catch a baseball anymore because I have no depth perception. And she just figured, well, maybe tennis might be the sport. And she had this, this wisdom that a person with eye problems could, if the court is constant, the terrain 
the geography of a court is always the same. So if you can gauge where the ball bounces, the ball will always, in her mind, will always rise and will come up into your strike, you know, your, your wheelhouse mm-hmm. where you strike the ball. And it was something that I could go out and she could do with me because I couldn't go out and play with the kids in the neighborhood play baseball or play basketball because my, uh, you know, I, I was learning how to see, I have double vision and I lost the vision of one eye. And, uh, if she was a seven, she was, she, she was a genius. And uh, she gave me a sport that became a lifetime sport. And I really got into, and this is one thing that, but you know, when you talk about an impairment that can be a gift and, and this was a gift because it, uh, I had this, joy of the game because of several reasons of, of the cadence and the beat and my mother had been a singer and my mother uh, almost went to, <laughs> a really quick story almost went to sweden in the royal swedish music academy but she was going to northwestern my father was a graduate student in journalism at northwestern and he figured the only way she was going to leave she was going to go to sweden and uh, he proposed that's the reason he proposed to marry her because he didn't want to lose her and so she had a decision go to sweden and pursue her dreams of music or or follow this man around who's trying to be a sports writer and fortunately she made the right decision or i wouldn't be sitting here right now <laughs> so but the, this whole idea of uh the cadence of the game the rhythm of the game the beat of the game was really important because she was really into that and she used to sing to me on the tennis court and here's this little kid at the public courts in santa barbara and she would feed me in the tennis print she took tennis lessons from this the city tennis pro in Santa Barbara. And so she could teach me what she was learning from him. This is when I'm probably around 13, 14, right after my accident. And she would take me out and he saw her teaching me. And so he offered her a job. It, you know, she, he said, you know, listen, I need an assistant. And she saw me teaching. He saw her teaching me. She started teaching tennis in Santa Barbara at the public courts. And uh, it's when I was turned 18 and that, then I started teaching tennis at the public courts as well. And then when I went to UCSB, I taught the PE classes. The coach had me. So it was this whole, I was so blessed and was so lucky that these people, I never was going to be a great player, even though I had those dreams, but what's the closest thing to it is to be a coach, right? Is to, you know, yeah, get connected. Yeah. That connection. Uh, I have my notes. Rita, your brother-in-law yes. says the uh, one in a million superstar, world-class human being. Um, let me say this about it, being blind in one eye. Um, Braden, there's a tribute on YouTube when Vic passed away. And he taught the sixth grade. And one of the sixth graders, I believe it was uh, a classmate, not the individual who was blind in one eye, but they're playing baseball. And all the kids were making fun of the guy because he couldn't catch pop flies. Right. So Vic shows up with an eye patch. And makes everybody go on the outfield and try to catch with with one eye, co- covered up in one eye. Even when you to bat, uh, tell us. I have to ask this. My father, uh, he was thirteen years old, and I I just couldn't see my father doing something so foolishly. But he grew up on a farm, and they were playing daredevil with a BB gun. And then he he didn't have very good vision in one eye. He had a, the same type of accident. How did how did you injure your eye again? Yeah, no, I was, I had, 
I was uh, <laughs> walking under the really quick. I had, was going to go surfing when I was young. I was yeah. like 11 or 10. And my brother and I went, uh, we lived about a block away from the ocean and you had to walk down a cliff and uh, to get to the beach. And that there's this pedestrian bridge. It goes over it on the way back. Well, we saw this kid started talking to him and we had gone surfing and then we started coming back up through this ravine and the kid was on top of this pedestrian bitch had a BB and started shooting at us oh. and hit me in the face or the head. And I looked up and next thing I know, he, I oh. was shot in the eye. So bad. Well, it's kind of a gift from God. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's cause I never, our family never would have gotten into it. My dad was a baseball player and, and all my, my siblings all learned to play baseball and softball. And my, my brother, Mark, was uh you know played junior college baseball and went to sc and then was helped out with the trojans didn't really make the team but then worked for the daily trojan as a writer like my father but it's funny it's just funny how fate is it's funny how just one little instant and just by being at that place under that bridge at that moment it totally turned our life and my family's life my mom really got into tennis she became a coach she coached at a junior college. Then when she was in her 60s, she played for the junior college when my sister uh, played on the team. So you had this mother and this daughter wow. on this college, junior college team at Santa Barbara City College. My sister plays. My daughter and my son are both college players, and they both are pursuing careers as coaches. It, it's amazing how this one little incident, you know, and, and that's the awe and wonder of life. Hardship can be a blessing. Yeah. Or just even meeting the right person at the right time. And that's the reason I love coaching. And that's the reason I know you're such a great coach because you care so much. And you have this ability, this gift to be able to change people's lives through a game. And there's no better way to change a person's life than through this childlike sense of learning and play. Uh, I, I won't go on this tangent, but the one thing that I realize is that in every culture in the world shares four things that's that is, is based on our humanity and what there is it's music every society in the world has music every society in the world has celebration and festivals every society in the world has love in terms of this this uh the family love how love is expressed in different ways in different cultures and finally is music every culture in the world has music and, and, you know, when you look at, that's the reason I am really, and my mom was, you know, was a music major, was a singer and loved music, would sing all the time in the family. And, and what happened, and here's my dad was a sports writer. So you have this divergence of these two different things that kind of whop, whap, bang. This is how I turned out, <laughs> you know, but. I'd have to ask you two questions to interrupt is, uh, can you sing? No, but I can, I, I do <laughs> sing in the shower. <laughs> and how's your grammar? My grammar is. Uh, Are you a pretty good writer? I'm. I, yeah, I can write. Yeah. I can write like my father did. Yeah, and my brother, but my my brother Mark is a sports writer now and uh, writes. He's retired, but he's still writing now. You know, online. Uh, he's a prolific writer, and his the things that he's written is amazing. I really want him to write a book. I keep saying we got to write a book. I can talk. He can write. I mean, what a combination! That would, that would be awesome. Yes, with. Right, and I have an older sister. I, I, I'm an amateur writer. I, I just know I think of her when I write something that she could just look at it and, yeah. and find something grammatically that needed to be improved. 
Well, school colors, we'll get into Boise State. I know you put Boise State on the map and I'm wearing Boise State. You're wearing uh, Northwestern colors. <laughs> but one thing about baseball too is that your father was a baseball player and, and you know knew so much about the game. I think one thing that's gone away, and you and I are the same age basically, we used to teach by used to teach tennis by saying, "Well, the half volley is like short hop, yeah. for the, the uh, short the the bat hop for the shortstop, yeah. or throwing a ball, and yeah. the strategy of baseball." And don't you think that's gone away where we don't use other sports to teach tennis? Well, I now? think it's. I think you're absolutely right. More than anything, in terms of if the use of other sports in terms of tennis, and also how you can be an advocate of tennis by comparing it to other sports. I mean, you can play baseball and you're waiting. You don't touch the ball. You could be for a half an hour, you know, if they don't send, if they don't hit it to you in right field or wherever you're at. And then you're up to bat. You, there's this waiting and you're not involved. And then you could be substituted, you know, or you could be pulled out. And, and I think, I think that's the beauty and the glory of tennis is you hit every ball. You cannot be substituted. If you want to play, you can play. And I think that the, uh, you know, based on my own upgrade bringing is I grew up in a neighborhood with a high school football coach. His sons lived three houses away from me. Everybody in our neighborhood, we played sports, we played sports. And then I became the geek. I became the outcast after my accident. And then all the next thing you know is tennis brought me right back into it. And I was blessed with this, this incredible game, this incredible dance that's forever changed my life. But it's, but the, the thing that's the most important thing, it's been a gift to me because, you know, I'm 70 years old. I still love to hit tennis balls. I still love the game. I mean, I, I feel like I mostly have to hit every day. Now you can imagine it gets a little bit harder and, and I have to also be humble enough to, uh, to accept this idea of aging. And that is that, now I keep trying to get better, but all I realize now is I'm trying just to maintain. You know, somebody that you and I both know so well, Jim Lair, is, he's always saying that tennis is, if you really are lucky, it becomes your drug. And you just, you got to have that feeling, that sound of the ball coming yes, off the yes. racket, just hitting balls. Let me ask about birth order. Uh, you're the oldest. Uh, tell you a quick story. Um, I was a college dropout. You know, you could say I withdrew from school. And one of the reasons I could do that was because I'm maybe a year and a half, two years younger than you. The, the draft, um, my number, my birthday was pulled out of the hat, but they dropped the draft. Yeah. So you, you, know, you used to stay in school. If you didn't go to school, you'd go straight to Vietnam. Yeah. So Mark Costello, a good friend of mine, he was withdrawing at the same time. Um, we later both went back, but we were in line to be college dropouts. And I told him, I said, you know, I can drop out, Costello, but you can't because you're the oldest. You can't drop out. I mean, on this Myers-Briggs brain typing, I'm a J, he's a P. Yeah. And I'm dead serious. I, yeah. We're, we're uh, maybe 20 years old. I go, you can't drop out. I can because I'm the youngest, but the oldest brother, you're the leader. Yeah. You know, and actually in some ways you're the, you're, you're the hero of the younger siblings. Why don't you talk a little bit about being the oldest? Then also with, on top of that, your dad passed away at a very young, you were, you were a teenager. 18. Right? 18. Just Why don't you tell turn. us about being the oldest of seven? Yeah. And just a, a large family. It was, uh, I, yeah, I think that's one reason I went into coaching because all of a sudden more than, you know, I went and I was going to go away. And you mentioned like Northwestern. It was funny. It was my dad went to Northwestern and, and I was 
thinking about going to Northwestern. And so Vandy Christie was a coach there and I was, had these illusions that I could play on the team. And, and then, uh, this, this tragedy, this Adamon that was dropped on me when my father, cause I always felt like my father was going to survive. He had cancer, but you know, as an 18 year old, you always believe that there's no way that he's going to be taken from you. And, uh, so that was a, that was a shock you know, to me, and it was demoralizing. It was, a, and uh, I did then realize I was the the patriarch of the family, and I was making a. And that's I had leadership skills. I don't know how. I was a student body president of my high school, and my I told my brother he had to be the student body president when I went on to college, and I was going to go away to school. But then, because of my father being sick, I decided to stay at Santa Barbara at UC Santa Barbara, which was really, a, was a blessing in a sense. And, um, and I really got involved with my, uh, my brother got married when he was like 19. He's still married, which is amazing. And, uh, he went to SC and then he, uh, uh became a journalist. Like he became exactly the same thing my father did. He was a writer, sports writer. And uh, I got really involved in the lives of my sisters. I had two other brothers, and they were a horrible age. And I was going to college, and they weren't involved. They didn't love tennis. They both loved to surf. And so they were surfers in California, which could be a good thing, which can be a bad thing. And it's because I surfed growing up, too, because we lived a block away from the ocean. But uh, the culture of surfing is... Is in some ways is a horrible culture. A lot of drugs, a lot of you know, just kind of escaping and not dealing. And I don't. I think I, the competition part of it is really good. I know a lot of surfers that went to college and did great things, but also there's a you know, there's a drug there's a drug culture and there's a gang culture to surfing. And uh, I had two brothers that went in that direction, but I really was involved with my three sisters. One's uh, mentally handicapped. But the other two really got into tennis. And I basically, with my mother, because my mother taught me, then my mother got into coaching. When my father died. She worked at a tennis club. The coach, like I said, the pro at this time, saw her teaching me, and he hired her to teach lessons. She became a city tennis pro. So it's it's amazing how life, how little instance can... Now, would this have happened if I had been shot in the eye with a BB gun? You know, well, this impact is like Pauline, who's... I was, you know, teaches as tennis pro and played at UC Irvine. And my youngest sister, Mo, who is probably the most gifted one of all of us, uh, was really an accomplished player. Unfortunately, she got really sick while she was in college and she passed when she was in her 20s. So it's uh, just amazing. But it, the one thing that kind of, I think, brought us together, my two sisters especially, was as an older... I, as an older, I was trying to be a father figure, but I was more of a coaching figure to them, you know, because I used to take them out and play tennis. And then I had tennis camps at Irvine when I was coaching UCI. So both Colleen and Mo lived at my tennis camps. And then I had a family tennis camp at UC Santa Barbara. So I just bring the girls up there. So I basically was a father figure, I guess. But I was a bit more of a big brother that was like, let's use tennis to change people's lives. Tell me about the age span. I know I, I'm from a family of six and I'm the youngest. So just the opposite of you. Yeah. And there's 11 years between the oldest and the youngest. How about in your family? I was probably 18 years older than Mo. 
No, it was Mo. Mo. Yes, I was. I was 18. My father died. Mo was three months when my father died. Wow. I was 18 years. So, yeah, there was, there was an 18-year gap between. Uh, family is a really powerful thing. It's a really powerful thing. With, uh, you have this book called Birth Order, and there's so many lessons. I mean, I, now families are so small. Just the, the new generation is Gen Alpha, and it's, and it's amazing how many families in this country just have one child. Right. And... You know, being from a family of six, uh, I can remember if one brother made a mistake, we felt like we all did. Because you know, <laughs> the, the father would lower the boom, and uh, with um, yeah, it's, it's so much learning. You know, you learn so much from your siblings. Yeah. Oh yeah. But it's definitely different. Where um, you have so many more responsibilities. I, I was married to an Irish gal for twenty years. She's from a family of eight, and she was the oldest daughter. So you ask about the, the different ages and. You know, so she was working at a young age within the household. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of responsibilities. I think when you're the oldest, you really learn leadership skills and you don't know it. I mean, I look back now and I go, uh, you know, it's like helping my mom or try to help. I went to UCSBs because it was close to home and my mom had just, you know, she was trying to make it with six, you know, other kids. They're a newborn baby. And uh, you, you learn certain things that affect you. And I think, to be honest with you, I think that's probably a lot of the success that I had in college as a coach was I was basically a parental figure and a brother figure. So I was so young when I started coaching college tennis. I was 23 at UCSB. And I was like, you know, I was like part of this. I had a teammate on my team who I coached was a teammate when I was playing there. And uh, all these you know these these things that you're you're confronted with in life that you then you really try to you know impart those the things that I learned to my players and to my siblings and uh, and I think that's one reason I was pretty successful I was, especially at a young age I, first of all, I was, was closer in age to all, so I could relate to my players. I went to Irvine, and I was able to recruit players. You know, I was in my twenties, and I had a, you know, I started coaching when I was like twenty-three. So I'm twenty-eight. I have five years of coaching, but I'm young enough, and you know, and and have that, and I can embrace kind of the emotions that the players are going through, and then help them through it in terms of you know, and also being responsible. So you know, there's sacrifice, you know, and I think sacrifice is a great thing and making my players okay no you're not going to party on friday night i know where you're going and i know who you're hanging out with and no no you're not going to be able to play then man if you want to play you have to earn it and this is a childlike sense of play that we're involved in there's a joy to it but don't screw it up by making wrong decisions and uh, with, with uh your experiences uh from a big family that that's amazing 23 to be a head coach um, I'm sure uh, your siblings hand me down clothes, and yeah. <laughs> uh, there wasn't a money tree in the backyard. No, no, no. It was. Uh, it it in, there's a community, it, it, which I found is there's a community in tennis that helped us. You know, that helped my mom. You know, through my mom, was taught tennis. She worked at a tennis shop. You know, and this is a way to survive. And then the tennis community embraced us. I mean, I had people taking me to tournaments. You know, I was. You know when my dad was sick for those two years. And, and what happened was this community embraced us and they embraced my two sisters as well, who got, and then the baseball community embraced my brother, Mark. The surfing community embraced my brother, Sean and Kevin. 
they became lost. <laughs> you know, they both, but one, Kevin eventually went on to be a minister and he went on to, you know, but boy, his, his younger years were, were, were horrible. I mean, he was in a lot of trouble. He went to prison and, but he got out, you know, became, uh, became very religious and became studied to be a minister and was. So it's amazing how, I mean, I think you have to embrace your heritage. You have to embrace your life. And then there's things that you come through it. Like I, I'm not one to, I, how do you say this without, I don't feel sorry for people. I think you make your life right. And don't tell me, you know, that there's reasons for you to make of the wrong decision. You know, you're given this one life, make with it the best that you can possibly can. And then if there's hardships, there's only, that's the greatest teacher that you will ever have. So I think as a coach, I never was once, I'm incredibly compassionate. I'm incredibly, I feel more for my players than anybody. I love them and I, and I want them to have a, a great life, but I will not, you know, I, you, I can't handle, I, uh, people make wrong decisions and I feel like that you don't tell me your sob story. Everybody's got trials and tribulations. We all do. So I'm nothing special and neither are you. So what are you going to do about it? Okay. And that's what I think when you see great players is that great players, there, there's this drive. And when I say players, I mean, in every sport, great players in careers is that they find a way to be successful in, they find, and we have this great gift that God's given us, which is a brain, Right. And this search of knowledge and that there's a joy in terms of learning. And that's the thing is like I always say with tennis, that is I always tried to tap in that joyful sense of play because play is one of the greatest ways that we can teach, right? And that we can teach people about life. Now, my journey as a tennis coach was basically a journey in, for me in life to become a more complete human being. And, um, and then what you use, like you use music and the cadence and the play. And these things are things that keep us for, you know, there is a fountain of youth. There is a fountain of youth. And it's play, music, music uh, movement, and touch. Okay? And language. So if you have positive language, if you have positive physical, uh, uh, you know, uh, feelings and, and touch in terms of people, you can touch their lives emotionally, physically. And then... You have dance, and like I said, one of the things that all every culture in the world uses is music. Basically, what happens is this, and this is one thing that I found that, like, for you know, you want to get into tennis. Tennis is the fountain of youth because tennis players live longer than anybody else. And I learned this 10, 15 years ago because we have a professor at Boise State. He came up to me one time and said, Who, what athletes live the longest? I said, Oh, this must be, well, it's runners. He said, You got to be kidding me. It's not runners. Runners sometimes have the shortest lifespan is the people that have the longest lifespan are tennis players by far. And now, you know, Mark uh, Kovacs has yep. come out with this thing and he says, it's like 10 years. We live 10 years longer than everybody else. Hallelujah. I love this. And, uh, and the reason in this, this professor gene, uh, genealogy at, at Boise state said that you know, tennis, why do tennis players live longer? They live longer, well, first of all, because of the, um, the cadence. We all have rhythm. There's rhythm. We have our heartbeats, rhythmic, right? 
and also our circulatory system. And that's when we hear music. There's the cadence and like we have, because we are rhythmic creatures physically and emotionally and spiritually. And so is tennis. Tennis is the most rhythmic game in the world. Now that rhythm has a beat, but also it has a pause. And there's stress and no stress. When you play the game, the point, there's stress and there's your body's activated. And then good tennis players know how to calm down between points. So one of my favorite things to say to players is calm down. Calm down the backswing. Calm down time between points. Calm down the points or get involved in the rhythm, the cadence of the ball when your opponent's hitting the ball. You don't have to rush. And if they want a reason, if they want an example, look at Roger Federer. He's what he takes it back. When you, when you watch him play, he is a calm down guy. Cool dude, yeah. Cool dude, and that's how he plays. Uh, I want to go back to Santa Barbara. I've never been there, but I wanted to say, ask you a couple of questions about Santa Barbara. One thing I always want to say, my mother uh, had a sign which you would have loved in her kitchen. She had just a few, but one said, don't feel, don't feel, don't ever feel sorry for yourself. Another one was, don't accept mediocrity. And another one was, dear Lord, please let me win the lottery and prove to you it won't change me as a person. <laughs> But uh, I've been a lot of beautiful places. Wintergreen is right on the top of the list now, but I've never been to Santa Barbara. I drove up the coast and down the coast one time to play a tournament up in Washington, but I've never been to Santa Barbara. Tell us about Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara had, well, you know, we call it heaven. I mean, I, I've seen Jesus on those streets sometimes walking around that, you know, it's heaven on earth. You have, you know, the, the great thing, but, and now I live in Boise, which is, you have the four seasons. And in Santa Barbara, you have two seasons. You have when it gets a little bit cloudy and and foggy, and then it's 75 degrees. It's The weather is ideal. So it's ideal for a tennis player because you can play tennis all the time. And it's a great tennis community. The tennis community there is out of this world. It's like we were talking about Jimmy Connors. You know, you could go on the public courts and see him. He plays at the public courts in Santa Barbara, you know, and you could see him playing. I was told that too recently. He was hitting the backboard. I guess now he's got both hips, but he stopped. He was hitting the yeah. backboard every day for yeah. 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. And you have this uh, tr tradition. You have great tennis clubs. The one thing about tennis in Santa Barbara that was so beautiful is if you play tournaments, the Santa Barbara Tennis Foundation, if you play tournaments, they years ago made it so that you, if you were a good tennis player and played tournaments, you could go play at all the different clubs. So you had the Santa Barbara Tennis Club, and uh, or the tennis club, the Tennis Club of Santa Barbara. There's Knollwood, there's La Cumbra, there's all these you know country clubs or clubs Montecito where if you were a player as a junior, you were welcomed. You could go up there and play, and the juniors from all the different clubs would play each other. And it wasn't like you had to have a guest fee or no, you can't play. I'm sorry, so you can't play at this club. That's where I what the type of environment I grew up in. And that's a type of environment in terms of caring. And the kids would go to tournaments and I would go to tournaments, you know, in this, you know, station wagon. And I was always at one time and it was based on your choice of seats is how good a player you were. I was always a kid sitting in the back of the station wagon looking in the opposite direction, <laughs> but it didn't matter because there was a community. And I think, I think this is a great thing about tennis. You, the way that you, you latch on the way that you convert this to a, a child to tennis 
is a sense of community, right? And you get him involved with his peers. And that's how you, you instill the seed of love for the game of tennis and this culture. And, and that's kind of how I got into it is, you know, I was down at Muni, the municipal tennis courts. That's where mom was teaching. She teached me there and I started making friends. That's a, which goes into another whole different discussion is want to be a player or do anything great in life and make friends, make friends, make friends, make friends with the right people. Right. So I, I made friends with all the really good players and, in, in Santa Barbara and got to hit with them and they would, I would get to go to the clubs and the clubs always welcomed me. Now, you know, and by, this is when I'm 16, 17. My dad now is, you know, is, is basically terminal hill. And then once my father passed, then I had a bunch of tennis coaches who became father figures to me to make sure I didn't go off the rails. Okay. Because I didn't have a father figure. So I was in Santa Barbara. Jerry Hatchett, he was the pro at Norwood. He's like, he was like a saint to me. Mike Corey, who taught me tennis, my mom, who hired my mom. The greatest took me in, was giving me lessons, just telling me how to play, would go watch me play. Larry Masuris, who was, you know, coached at the tennis club of Santa Barbara with Hardy Bottleson. These are all good friends of mine now, but those are all basically mentors. See, so to be a coach, to be a great coach, you have to be not only just a teacher, you have to be a mentor and you have to be a guide. I mean, think about this. What to, in a story, in my story, in your story, there's four characters. There's a villain, there's a victim, there's a hero, then there's a sage. Now, everybody wants to be, always say, who's the greatest character in that story? Everybody says it's the hero. I go, no, no, the greatest hero, or the greatest person, the hero in the story, is, is, the, is the sage, it's the mentor. Karate Kid. It's Mr. Wanagi. Yeah, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Uh, Star Wars. It's Yoda and Obi Kenobi. They got two. And uh, Lord of the Rings. It's is it um, Gandalf? And in Harry Potter, it's Dumbledore. So everybody, when I say Dumbledore, you know what I'm talking about. When I say Yoda, you know what I'm talking about. When you say Mr. Miyagi, you know what I'm talking about. I've been called Yoda. <laughs> You're the best looking Yoda I know. Well, I'm the second best looking Yoda. So. You know, so what happened was I had all these mentors. And so that's when I was, that's when in my, the greatest thing I ever happened to me was I, I was in college and I was, you know, and I was on the team, but then the Peace Corps came on. They were trying to recruit people to go overseas in the Peace Corps and be tennis coaches. So what happened was, and I had been teaching the, the coaches and the tennis coach at UCSB, his name was Ed Doty. And, he knew I was struggling for money, so he basically had me wash the courts and give me a few bucks. And so I worked for it. Then the coach, you know, Mike Corey down Sabre, I was teaching for him to make money. So I was teaching, and the Peace Corps comes in. They're looking for college players. They came. They got my name somehow, and they saw me go and play, practicing with the team at UCSB, then going down to Santa Barbara and teaching a junior client. They asked me if I wanted to go to Ghana to be a college, I mean, to be a national coach. I'm like 22, 23. Now, remember, I have no, there's, I'm making the decisions of my life. My mom has enough on her plate than to deal with, with me, right? So I'm going to college. She trusts me. I'm going to do okay. And uh, I go to Ghana. I go to Ghana for half a year. I got really sick. We came home. And then, this is the wackiest thing, is I don't have any eligibility at UCSB left anymore. So I go to Westmont which is this Christian college in the mountains of Santa Barbara. 
because it's a division three school. I had eligibility. I'm there for like three weeks. And then my coach at UCSB takes another job. And the AD there, since I had been the team captain at UCSB and raising money, raising money for the team as a captain and the way we raise money, well, I'm going off all, the, all over the it's place. It's all good. It's all good. So I'm, I'm at Santa Barbara when I was the captain of the team. And I was got my teammates. We'd raise money for the team to get uniforms and equipment, whatever it was. We would work for the concerts and we would do setup. We were like roadies. And at the end of the concert, we would be uh, picking up the trash and do cleanup. And so my team would get a few thousand dollars every time we would go to the concert. So my guys, we were working for free, but we got to go to the concerts and we got to sometimes got to be backstage. So the Grateful Dead at UCSB were backstage. As a matter of fact, they started one song. I fell asleep. I wake up two hours later and they're still playing the same song. <laughs> and then we, we were there for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young when they played at UCSB. And then when Bruce Springsteen played for you, we're working backstage. We see these guys. My teammates thought I was a god <laughs> because I just got back there and we're seeing all these great, you know, the, the greatest error in music was that. And it was also the greatest error in tennis because that's when tennis got the imagination, caught the fantasy and the dreams and the imagination of Americans with all the great players are coming Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, all those guys. You know, and I was a college guy when those guys were playing pro. And then Connors came in and was the bad boy. Then John McEnroe was the bad boy. Then he even added more spice. It was like the good, the bad, and the ugly. With uh, California, I want to start with a question here, but with California, I remember set the scene for you that it was a John Wayne tennis club and Dennis Ralston was a huge name at the time. He was coaching SMU and SMU was in town to play UCI. I was at that match. Was you I, at the match? But I, I re, yeah, I was at that match. And I remember when Whoa. you, when you went to Boise, people were shocked that, that you left California. They yeah. thought that you would never leave California. But let me uh, ask this question. Um, um, and these questions they have may be random, but it'll be fine. Brad Stein. I don't really know Brad well. I was with him for two weeks. He was working with the USTA, my son, Connor. Yeah. Um, I know he coached Courier, who was number one in the world. I mean, he's coaching Anderson. He got to Wimbledon final. He's coaching Tommy Paul now. Um, yeah, he seemed to, you know, if you define a coach, I mean, he's got the voice. He's got the, he's got the look, the passion. Uh, yeah. Why don't you tell us about your connection with Brad Stein? Um, Brad was a player at Fresno state and I was coaching at UCI and, uh, I really, he would come up to me, you know, after a match and ask me questions and we could be, we just, we started this relationship and just, Hey coach, how you doing? And, and UCI, we were kicking butt and taking names. I mean, we were really good. We were top 10 in the country and Brad was playing for Fresno state. So then when I um, got the job as a, the Junior Davis Cup coach, I was looking for young guys. And by this time, Brad had gone on to be the assistant coach at um, Fresno State. And so I wanted someone who was a player, who could play with the guys, who was really – because Brad used to always come up to me you know, at the conference tournament. We would sit down and we'd sit and talk tennis. And he asked me my ideas about this and that, how – you know, the, how, how does this guy have such a good serve and talking about it, two hand backhand versus one hand and about the grips. And so this is like when he's 20 years old. And so I hired him to be um, 
my assistant coach was the Junior Davis Cup team. And uh, God, we were so blessed. And we had Sampras, Chang, Courier, um, you know, Martin Blackman, uh, you know, just the list goes on and on of players that were with us. And so Brad was part of that group. So Brad helped me set up the uh, the camps because we had a tryout camp. So Brad and I, we became soul brothers in the sense that we were together 24-7 for, for the entire summer. And then during the vacation periods, during the school year, you know, we would go, that's when there was tournaments, you know, during Christmas time, there's terms for the juniors. We go do that and we do a training camp, you know, at Easter time. And we were always kind of running in and out of college. So that's how our relationship started. And Brad is, is brilliant. I think he's, and he's very insightful and he has a, a calming, uh, he has, and he's a great sharp sense of humor. And he's also an incredible student of the game. And everybody was around him. So after I left the USTA, the, the Junior Davis Cup team, there was this big, at that time, there was this big battle between people in the USTA felt, why do we have a team? This is an individual sport. Why are we working with 10 boys when there's three boys that we should be working, putting our energy into? Obviously, I, Brad and I were both of the belief, and I, I swear to it to, to this day, that if you want to develop a great players in your country develop teams to develop a team where they play for each other, where they help each other, they're friends, that they work with each other, that they cheer for each other. And that's what the, I felt the junior Davis cup team did. And also it made a lot of kids hungry and it sparked the, the desire like, gosh, dang it. I want to be on that team. How do I make that team? Well, it's really easy. We compete. We would spend two weeks competing. It was the fiercest comp competition you could ever have. So Brad was really a part of that. And he could relate with the players and he could play and beat the players. So uh, when Agassi turned pro and then Sampras turned pro, then Jim was, and Jim looked, you know, was talking to both of us about, you know, what, what do I do? And Brad was like, I, there's no doubt you should, even though he had, was a college coach at the time, mm -hmm. is I, we think you should you know, follow these guys are doing it and you can, you can beat them. And he was proving it in the juniors. He was beating these guys. And so he made the same, same switch. So what happened was courier then had, and we had been working a little bit with Jose Igaris. And so, Hey, Jose asked Brad to join him with several kids that he was working with and courier was one. So, and then Jose didn't want to be, strapped to like one player all the time. So Brad went off to be the guy with, with, with Jim and Jim, when you ever talk to Jim, you know, he, he, he recognizes and he exalts and he praises what Brad Stein did and helped him. Because coached him for player. a long, long time. Starting a long, a teenager. A long, yeah. Till he retired. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. He was off and on with him. Yeah. Till I did know you guys were close. You guys were in each other's wedding parties and, yeah. um, but yeah, with his work with Kevin Anderson and Tommy Paul, I mean, the uh, that expression, you know, I hate touches something turns to gold. He does. He does. He has a great, he has a great touch and he has a great, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I've learned the most from people that were my assistant coaches. You know, you, you know what I mean? Where you see how they can tap into a player and touch a player in a sense of mentally and emotionally. Okay. So that 
and they they know that the player knows that the coach has their back no matter what type of style he is authoritative or he's kind of the best friend type of guy is you know they can they can walk those waters where in terms of confronting a player with things that maybe they don't want to hear yeah and usually to be honest with you i think coaches the great coaches have the ability to say things to players that are it's an epiphany that there's things that they need to hear but sometimes they don't want to hear you know, is if you want to make that sacrifice, if you want to be the greatest, if you want your life to, to illuminate the skies, you know, this is, this is the pathway you have to take. And, you know, I, I always have a saying that obstacles do not block the path. Obstacles are the path. And then once you understand that, that's well put. Yeah. And if the coach, you know, is the sage, I'm talking about the greatest person in a player's life is don't be a victim. Okay. You don't want to be the villain as you want to defeat the villain and don't worry about being a hero is find a state, a sage, a mentor, a guide who can take you. And that's the thing is I think a lot of great players, I mean, great, I think Paul Anacone, I, I saw him do magical things with players where he can, you know, listen to a player and, and talk to him. Jose Garris was the master at that, you know, and, and there's several players. I, Tom Galkson, I felt, you know, I was with Tom. So I was just so fortunate then to be able to learn from them, you know what I mean? And to be able just to sit, be there right next to them when they're talking to the players, to Sampras, to Chang, and to watch the guys coming up. And we have a lot of parents of junior tennis players who listen to our podcast. Uh, let's do some quick answers. Uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a young Michael Chang? When I think of it right now? No, no, when uh, he was a kid. When you oh, the were, first when, thing? When, you, when he was a kid, what was your first impression? Oh, my gosh, he was just shy. He was in the back in, uh, of the row, but he was just a machine. I mean, he was just focusing. He uh, he was the type of guy that was just always looking around like this. His eyes were darting back and forth. And when he got on the court, he was just going to run down everything, and he was going to get everything back. And so he, he really influenced my style of coaching in the sense is what's the first thing you need to do to teach a player? I think it's consistency. Get the ball over the net. Learn how to hit the ball high over the net and realize that your opponent, your greatest opponent is the net. So that's the one thing I learned from Chang because Chang was like there. And, you know, the funny thing is Chang didn't integrate with the, the guys on the team at the beginning very well because he was, you know, his mom was always around and his mom was taking him and he was, she would drop him off, bring him there. Even then during the, the camps, you know, he had pajamas. <laughs> and, and But the thing is, the guy went out on the court and he was relentless on pers pursuing the ball. He was relentless. Res Relentless in terms of getting the ball high over the net and making balls, making balls, making balls. So you had this incredible disparity between Michael Chang, who's at this camp when he was 16 years old, and Pete Sampras, who's hitting bombs, right? Now, and Pete had uh, Peter Fisher as his coach, and Peter right. was always telling us, you know, he's always, you know, he would come and we didn't let the coaches at the camp so that they wouldn't, you know, but, you know, Pete. Fisher was always calling me, and, and it turned out he was sneaking up. We were up in Roner Park. Somehow I went by and was watching through the fences, and, and Brad came up to me and says, there's Pete Fisher over there. And he was watching Pete Sampras. And so that's fine. They can hide and watch, but, you know, when you're trying to develop a team and pick a team, you, you can't have those outside influences coming in, right? So you have to be strong enough to say, hey, Dr. Fisher, I'm sorry, but you, you got to go. Sorry, brother. And uh, – but then, so you had this disparity between Chang and Pete. 
Pete in these big monster bombs. And the one thing, too, about Chang that I learned, Chang would back off the baseline. Now, in those days, if you think about it, and I'd love to hear your feeling about it, is in those days, a lot of coaches were teaching players to, to move into the court, you know, on the baseline, and to take the ball early. And here you have Chang moving back and hitting the ball and driving Pete crazy because they were playing. Uh, Courier was there was playing. Martin Blackman was there was playing. I mean, if you saw that picture of the team in those days, it was unbelievable. Malavia Washington was on that team. Early finalist, right? Yep. Lost to Krychek. Yeah. Um, Richard Krychek. With young Pete Sampras, first thing, I mean, the serves. Um, what was his personality like? Is he shy as well? Oh, yeah, introvert to the extent. I mean, would just, but the one thing that about Pete that people don't realize, when you were talking, he would sear you with his eyes. You know, he would look at you and he wouldn't take his eyes off of you. And you're wondering when you're talking to him, what's he thinking? You know, yeah, like, he's probably listening. Yeah, but he's yeah, but he's he's, it he's taking it in, and he was incredibly shy and introverted. He wasn't one of the leaders of the camp. He was kicking ass and taking names, you know. And he was the big serve, and he didn't say much. And he was, to be honest with you, um, I think a lot of ways he had a discipline not to go down the wrong trap. Because remember, there's so many different things we're trying to pull. I mean, we had great players that didn't make it because they made poor decisions and they're making poor decisions in their lives. And they wanted to rebel against their families. But when you look at the guys that did really well, the parents were a big factor in the sense that they held them accountable. The Changs held Michael accountable, right? And they were really, Mrs. Chang was always on me about where are you staying? What's he doing? We don't want him to stay there. We don't want him to stay with us. And we said, no, if he's on the team, he's got to stay in the hotel with us. We're the ones that take him. If he's on our team, we can't have you being a part. So she was always off in the, off in the outskirts. Same thing with Fisher. But, you know, Mr. Sampras family, they were really off hands, but in a lot of ways they were really on hand. So I, ne I never saw Mr. Sampras. I saw Mrs. Sampras, but she would be watching Pete play four courts down, hiding behind a tree, and then would leave. So, um, and then uh, Courier's dad was, his dad was a baseball player, and his dad was a strong, you know, and I would talk to him, but he was never, it was like, coach, you're the coach, you got him, I'm giving you the, you know, here's the keys of his life, you go on, you go on for the next four weeks. I could travel with him, I went over, took him to France, I mean, to Germany, I was taking him overseas, and the same thing with a lot of them. Uh, the parents had trust. That's the thing that I have to, if you as a coach, and if, I, if we can instill trust in the parents, when I'm coaching junior players, if the parents trust you and know you're going to make the right decisions, you know that you have the right lifestyle, and know that you have the right values and ethics and all these things, they will go with you and they will support you. And then the kids are a part of your family, the coaching family that we develop. Right. So, and that's the same thing that I used as a college coach is I told parents, I go, listen, uh, I'm going to be their daddy. Now I'm their daddy. You got to trust me. I'll do the right things for the right reasons and help them get their degree. And if they want to play tennis, uh, professional tennis, I'll give them every, you know, ounce I can to help them get there. And several of the guys I've coaching college tennis did play and they played on this year. A lot of them did. And some did really successful, basically in doubles. So, it's that's the thing is that you learned when I was a young coach. Remember when I was like coaching the Junior Davis Cup team, I was 25, 24, 25, 26. But I was so free. That was my family. That was, I didn't have, you know, the girlfriend. I didn't have that. It was just, I was just totally immersed in, 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 you know, what's the word that I was, 
immersed immersed in and just 24 hours a day you know and then with brad brad was my soul brother we we would go everywhere at night and just talk about the players and about the matches who we were going to watch the next day and, and then learning learning is because there's so many good coaches around with these players the individual is picking their brain picking their brain picking their brain right and that's the one thing i think about anybody in greatness i don't care how smart you are how great you are, you need a mentor you need someone to talk to. You need someone to throw ideas off of how to become a better coach. And by that time, I was stuck. I knew what my path was. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to coach college tennis first and foremost. And then I loved the international part. So I worked, you know, Junior Davis Cup for five years, four to five years. And then I went back for four years as a full-time guy doing that, traveling around the world. And what it is, is it's going to grad school at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, all put together the tennis you know, hierarchy in terms of that and, and learning certain things. And, uh, and I think that's one thing about what I've seen, of, like Tom Gullickson and, and uh, Jose and, and Paul, a lot of it, it's great when, and Stan Smith is, you know, get together and go have a drink, which is basically maybe sometimes is just a half a glass of wine and talk to these guys and talk tennis all night long. And then talk about players and personalities and, grips and, and you know and also the difference and you know when i was growing up a lot of it was like the game was played one way it was played one way it was the way that you know i was taught and then you'll learn that there's different players you adapt to the different nuances of each and every player that, that what we provide as coaches is guidance support okay and obviously there's the same players do not care they don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care and every coach is different. Um, your style is, I, you know, I, I, you're, 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 you're legendary. And, and so it's such an honor to talk to you is you're a no nonsense coach, you know, but you love the players and the players love you and you come through also that you're prepared and you're incredibly prepared. You're prepared for them and the lesson plan and the workouts that you have, because I've talked to players that work with you and you raised a son. That's the hardest thing. The greatest create, credit that I give to you is a lot of kids don't want to play the sports that their old man coaches. And your son went on to play professionally. I take pride in the fact that my son and daughter both played. My son was pretty damn good. Played one for us. Helps us. We were in the top 20 every year when my son was playing for us. And wow. we, so, and, but each one has a different path. You know, my son and my daughter both are in love with coaching. So I wanted to be players and they wanted to become coaches. And they wanted, and my wife looked at me, she says, my God, they want to be like you. <laughs> Let me ask you this. That's all fantastic input. Um, world team tennis. I know you coach three cities. Yeah. Let's start with a trivia question. Uh, St. Louis, Newport Beach, California, right? Yeah, yeah. And Boise. I think one of them had a great name. Uh, what were the names of the teams? Uh, down in uh, Newport Beach, it was the uh, Sneakers. No, it was the Dukes. Uh, and the Newport Beach Dukes, and that was because of John Wayne, because we played at the okay. John Wayne Tennis Club. The Dukes, all right. And then we, I went to Boise, and it was the Idaho Sneakers. Yeah, I thought that was a great that name. That was a great name. Yeah, it was. Super. And, and I th that came across, I was with the guy, his name was Cord Pereira, and he, uh, his dad, as a matter of fact, did a lot of the engineering and architect work for UC Irvine, where he coached, and then, but his son was... He had followed us when we were at Newport Beach and we went to Boise to be the Boise State coach. They immediately, I wanted to start a team there and he became the owner of the Pereiras 
became the owners. And we said, you know, these, the, our, our saying was, these sneakers don't stink. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And so it was a lot of fun. It was, it, we picked a name that I could have a lot of fun with to promote the team. And Boise was a great place to have it. And it's a great place to have it in Newport Beach because the local community is basically four villages, right? That have a, you know, and so in Boise, they never had a pro team in anything. They had the football and you brought these pros out there. We had Lindsay Davenport, we had Martina Navratilova. We had all the greats come up. John McEnroe played up in Boise in World Team tennis and this, these weren't just exhibitions these were matches when they're playing on a team and all these players the greatness the thing i learned about world team tennis as well is these great tennis players who would could come and play for four weeks on a team and they used it as a way to get ready for the u.s open but they were so passionate they they had this intense desire to win to win to be the best they could be in four weeks of world team tennis. Like you don't know that, you know, that Martinez won more world team tennis championships. We, I, or I've coached world team tennis and I've lost in the finals world team tennis four times. I've always been the runner up, the bridesmaid waiting, you know? So, but the thing is, at least I was at the show, That's but, great. you know, but we had uh, Ricky Leach was number one in the world there. And oh, we had such, uh, I had, uh, Sargas Sargisian with Brian Shelton on my team there. That was, and then Katrina Adams played for me there. Zena uh, Garrison played for me there. I mean, we had we had some great legends come up and play. And so for four weeks out of my life, and so I did that for I think 14, 17 years, World wow. Tennis. Is I'm with you know I had Andy Roddick on my team. I, you know, and, and a young, just, a young Andy Roddick. Yeah. Right? Well, the first thing was this: I was with the national team. Then, but I was had left the world team tennis, uh, you know, stage. But I had talked Gully into letting me um, coach the world team tennis, and so I was going to have a Harper uh, Griffith yeah, and Andy man. Roddick, and then there was Holly Parkinson, and then there was one other gal. So we were taking four players off the junior team to play world team tennis. Okay, why? Because four weeks they have coaching. They have coaching. They're playing. The, they're playing intense sets. They're playing doubles. It's the greatest developmental tool. That's the reason all the pros were using it at the time, is they got four weeks to get ready for the U.S. Open, right? Because they came off the grass and they go straight to World Team Tennis, and so that's the reason we had all the stars. I mean, Connors played for years. Macro played. So I was coaching against Macro. I was coaching. I've had Jimmy Connors pull my shorts down during a match because I was yelling at the official one time <laughs> for listening to Connors. I say, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. And Connors walks by and drops my shorts in front of 5,000 people at the forum. And then McEnroe starts yelling at me one time. I'm with Ricky Leach and Macro's having a fit. And so I went to official. I said, sir, we got to keep going. This. And I'm just thinking about the TV stuff that's going on that he's having this. We had a time frame of World Team Tennis. So I was more involved in terms of how to market this. And McEnroe goes crazy on me. And it's telling me all these, you know, these four-letter words. And so Ricky Leach, who's playing on my team, gets up and gets an argument. He says, you don't talk to our coach like that. Nobody talks to our coach like that. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. Sounds like hockey. Yeah, oh, it was. It well, was. Billie Jean King, you have to give her great credit because she hasn't given up. I mean, the season was shortened over time, but yeah. she hasn't given up on making no, team tennis I happen. Wish, I think world team tennis is unbelievable. I think it's the greatest teach, teaching skill. Like I was going to say, though, we had all these juniors go play for the sneakers, and so I was going to coach it. And then uh, one of our coaches, I think it was Nick Saviano, goes to says, Patton can't be coaching world team tennis for four weeks. Well, we're out trudging up with the kids. And I said, okay. And so then Gully was 
you know, like it was always want everybody happy. And so I said, I go, golly, this is a great thing to put Andy in. So I says, okay, but we'll let Andy play, but we better, we need you coaching because that's a, a private venture, right? That's like, and, and I got it. I said, you're right. So I didn't get to coach those guys. But then once I got, uh, went back to Boise State and wasn't coaching uh, on the national team, um, I had Andy play for me for, in St. Louis. I had uh, Sam Query play for me in St. Louis. So I got a lot of the kids that I was working with as a junior national coach. Once they went pro, I just called them up and I say, Sam, come on and play. We need you to play. World Team Tennis, four weeks. We'll get you ready for the. We'll get you ready for the U.S. Open. Why don't you quickly tell the listeners what's the format of Team World Team Tennis and what are your thoughts on it? Oh, I, I think World Team Tennis is so much fun. It's 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 so. And every point counts. That's what I love. And don't let me forget that point. Um, okay. But yeah, explain the format. The, the format, first of all, is you have women's singles, men's singles, and then you have women's doubles, men's doubles, and mixed doubles, and you play one set and. Every game counts. So if the set is six to four, I have six points, you have four points, and then we play and you start with, uh, and the lineup is made up with, you have a doubles, singles, doubles, singles, and doubles. And you can pick the order of that. So the home coach gets to pick the order. So if you have a team that's really strong and where you can you know, maybe bring back the match, you you put that team usually at the fifth spot, you know, at the fifth double. So you hopefully, if you're losing, and let's say at the end of the match, one team has 18 points, games, and the other team has 16, and it goes, but the team that won the last double set, if their team hasn't won, they keep playing until they can either tie the other team or the other team finally wins where they still have that lead. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a great format. So every point counts. They started no ad scoring, which was good. They started the tiebreakers at uh, Billie Jean King and her wisdom and creativity. They started playing tiebreakers, I think, at five all. If originally it was at six all, then they started playing the tiebreakers at five all because they wanted to keep it fast moving and keep the, the crowd engaged. And they made it so that the format wasn't like, for example, let's say if you're playing like collegiate scoring. If you're playing seven matches and one team gets up to four and there's a still like two matches left, they're just, they don't count for Right, anything. right. But in world team tennis, no matter if you're winning by, it's all based on games, not the sets. So if you go into that, you're always just looking at how many games you have, right? So my guy wins six, four in the singles. Okay, we're up six to four. Now in the the next is the doubles. They play women's doubles and they win the doubles six four. So now the score is basically tied, and so you just keep counting. Each game counts, so the importance of each game was important. And then also remember there was no ad scoring, so that it came down to you know which side of the court you're going to play. So a coach really became important in those days, and I was so lucky because I started coaching world team tennis. I mean back in the 80s i you know the coach the players will look at you as terms of which side do you want to receive or do you want to return which side of the court do you want to receive on in terms of big points so there's a lot of interaction and that's if you look at college tennis now do you know how much, much t- the coaches walk onto the court in college tennis now when i was coaching college tennis for my whole career if you walked on the court you're going to be penalized the coach could only you know talk 
between games to the players when they were coming out, when I first started. In World Team Tennis, I was walking out in the court and see when the two doubles partners to get together, I'd sometimes run out there and just get with them and say, you got to serve into this guy's body or you're going to tell him where yeah. you're going to serve to. Or, you know, you're going to serve and play eye, get in the middle and cover the line. Or, and so you had that. And so it made it really, but there was a time clock. So sometimes my gift for gab, I would get zinged by the officials. The officials are all warm. You don't, but you know, the coach goes out there. He's only got like 10 seconds and dang it. You know, so sometimes it really hurt us because I went out there and was out there too long. With world team tennis uh, for listeners, um, you know, Greg, obviously 50 years or more. It's not that you're a historian that you're, you're walking history <laughs> with, uh, in, we have a fact checker, but in 74, Jimmy Connors, as you know, uh, he won three of the four grand slams, yes. but, but he wasn't allowed to play the French because he had played for the Baltimore banners, yes. world team tennis, yeah. and he was banned. Yeah. So he was denied the chance to play uh, for the, Grand Slam, and I, I try to correct myself when we call the U.S. Open the, a Grand Slam. It's not no, a Grand it's Slam. A it's, slam. A, it's a major. Yeah, you have to win all four for it to be a Grand Slam. Yeah, but, and then Vilas, not to take anything away from Vilas, um, the year that he won the French, I believe it was '77. Borg was there. He played World Team Tennis. Yeah, I mean it, it, the, the season was shortened, but I really I think the the alphabet soup of tennis. If we had a commissioner, it wouldn't be great if World Team Tennis had a permanent places where it wasn't down to four weeks and it was right it was like okay every city has a team and it's very much like okay look at the excitement of the playoffs and the nba and the nhl and all that um it was it wasn't too long ago i was with a player at the u.s open ram Ravanathan. i said we're going let's go and yeah. we went from uh the qualies at flushing meadows over to the old forest hills and uh one of our students won the player of the year uh raven Klassen. Yes. He was playing world team tennis. I know someone that you took to France. Well, I've got that in my notes here. Austin Krychek, um, played world team tennis because they, they tried to have juniors and college. There's been so many positive to have some junior players, some college players. There's just so many positives about it, but it's almost like it's been, you know, pushed off and it, people don't know that like, you, and it's great to hear you say that like a Naratilova, yeah. um, um, JL, you must know JL, John Lofton. Oh yeah. He, I coached him on a team. I mean, I had, uh, I, he, he stayed with me when he was a kid. It's not like I coached him, like I coached Raven, but yeah. um, he's on your team. Yes. Wow. And he, he was on a world team test, and then he went on to coach play. To be honest with my first uh, interaction with, with John Lofney was when he played against us in world team tennis. And he was, you know, he was really animated, and I'm kind of animated, but always kind of, uh, I'm not having a connection. I always, you know, was, behave yourself when you're on the court. So yeah, I, I don't think there's too many great patent stories about being, you know, going crazy, but I was always trying to use humor with everything. And so, and John Lofney was upset with a call or something against us. And he was, and, and then I kind of went up to the official and started joking around and then Lofney, you know, cause I didn't want Lofney to get away with anything. And then what happened was the next year he was a free agent I go, I want that guy. That guy was, he was so exciting, you know, and so he played for us. And he plays, as a matter of fact, he played on the same team as Andy Roddick. It's like he brought a little rugby to it. Yeah, South yeah. African boy. Uh, coming back to you, don't feel sorry for yourself. Diaga, a lot of people wouldn't know this coming back, but in left foot, right foot, I'm not sure which one, but he had uh, about 60% range of motion. It was a, something happening uh, uh, during, during birth. Uh, that was something that, 
I became a world-class tennis player. A lot of people didn't know that, that he didn't have complete range of motion with one of his feet. Uh-huh. With uh, uh, World Team Tennis, what an experience. Tell us about your Bible. You travel with this notebook. Um, <laughs> tell us about that. My, I couldn't go. It, it's been really hard on me because of the introduction of technology and phones and that. But I, ever since um, I went to UC Irvine, you know, I used to have a notebook. And if I go around with everything, so I didn't bring my... I, I don't have my planner with me, but I had a Franklin planner and I started using it and I would write down everything. It was basically a diary, a diary and a journal. And also it's telling my plans and my dreams of where I wanted to go. And it's also anytime I heard anything or if I thought of anything that could inspire that I would write those things down on there. And so I, I have a bunch of things on there. Like, you know, you um, learn from the past, prepare for the future perform in the present you know i just have things like that written down uh all i've seen it i've seen it on youtube i mean you very uh it's very small your print looks like it's very organized yeah yeah but it's like yeah no i i yeah i i went everywhere it was was kind of my you know it's uh what is it that you take with you everywhere you go that's part of you know if i didn't have it i would I, I'm still like this. Look at this security blanket. Yeah, I have my notes here that my security blanket. And so I, um, I, I took it with me everywhere. And so I had a backpack and I had my backpack with me right there. And so the technology's kind of gotten away because I really feel that when like great writers, it's the art of writing something down in terms of learning it. I, I think when you're on. You know, even when you type it out, it isn't the same as the written word in terms of getting a pencil or a pen and a pad of paper and writing it. So I, I've been told that you have a better chance of remembering it if you write it down versus if you type it. Oh, yeah, that's 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 really that's it's so true. And I don't know why it is. I think to write notes and rewrite notes, it's kind of gone away. No. And I think there's there's going to be for I think in terms of creativity and terms of, you know, even in terms of personal growth i think you're losing out a little bit i truly believe that in terms of just the physical art of writing and uh and then writing down a journal keeping a journal i used to keep a journal well, that the, the planner was a journal for me and i go through it my wife one time was trying to put all my journals i mean i have i have 30 years 40 years and then I can go back, and I've had my players from Irvine came up, and they're playing the national tournaments up in uh, age group tournaments in Boise, and all the guys stay at my house. They're playing in the fifties, and uh, they come and they go downstairs and have. And if you open up that closet, you open the closet and you see all my freaking planners there, you know. And, and every year I started using them when I was at Irvine. When I went to UCI, I went there and the basketball coach had one and he said, Pat, you got to check this out because I was carrying around just a little notepad, which just was no order to it. And I was going, well, gosh, you got to look at this and that. And and he goes, "Um, here's a planner. This is how you get it. So I still, I still use it. I still use it. And I think it's really important. I think it's helped me. I can also like, for example, at a practice, you know, if there, I would have to end of practice, I'd always get into that journal and I'd say, okay, so-and-so has got to really work on his second serve. Okay. And he's got to really you know, work on his toss. And I would write down what I thought needed to tell him. So the next day I'd go and I'd open up my planner. So my planner was always with me at practice. And I just go like for JS, which was for Jim Snyder. Uh, and we called him groundy. And so I would, that's another thing I used to use 
nicknames. I'd give everybody a nickname, everybody. And I think the what and I, I think the beauty of it is, is that that is kind of an affection that that ties you with the athlete, right? You have a nickname, and that nickname ties them with the group. That this is kind of a badge of honor. It was it was a ritual, a tribal ritual to bring us together. I, I. I feel like sometimes with sports, like you were talking about Northwestern, you know, that football scandal, I think some of, you know, hazing and harassment and that stuff is, is horrible. I think it's, it's horrifying. I think a coach needs to do everything to stop something like that Yeah. in terms of to bring people in. So everybody needs to feel like a good coach makes a player feel welcome. This is family. This is family. That's what I always talk about too. I always call, I call my players brothers. I go to always come, Hey brother, we got to do this. Always, they're part of the family. Okay. And I always mentioned too, that whenever my meetings, I was a college coach, it was always, this is our family and the world team tennis. It was a family brother. You know, I used to call sister Katrina. And so I was at Wimbledon last year and Katrina Adams was up in the stands and she goes, brother, Greg, brother, Greg. I looked at him and I go, sister Katrina, you know, and it was kind of, it's, yeah. it was, it's that type of thing. I think it's uh, good coaches find every way possible that they can tie the p- athlete and them together in a, uh, an emotional, intellectual, spiritual way. You know, that this is more than you just being a, te- a teacher, you're a mentor, you're a coach. There's a, there's a good point, Price, to lead into this question. I know you love to ask people, you could expound upon this. Why do you play tennis? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, that, this is my favorite thing. Um, we asked this years ago at a Junior Davis Cup camp, why the kids played. And I was looking for the answer that they loved to play, right? So, But you know what? All of a sudden, you get these kids saying things like, okay, we'd ask the kids, why do you play tennis? And they go, well, it's a great way to meet girls. It's a great, I need to get a college scholarship. I, I you know, want to be, my parents make me. Uh, I don't, you know, this is the, what I'm good at. So I, you know, there was, but we were looking for a look. I love to play, but then a player at one of the national training camps said, he goes, I love to play for the feeling that I get. And it was like an epiphany to me. I went, Oh my God, I love how I feel. I, how I feel about coaching these players and being so immersed in this play ground and the play that they're doing on this playground and how I am emotionally, spiritually entwined, involved with them. And you're a great coach. And you know, the same thing is when they play, you are totally focused on that. There's that dance that you're a part of. And that's the reason the players. So after this guy said this, and I don't can't remember the players. I used to think it was one guy. And then I said it several times in a speech and, uh, one of the uh, Mickey coach said, coach, it wasn't so-and-so that said that it was someone else who said it. Um, and I, I don't know who it is. It doesn't matter anymore. He played for the feeling. So what I did is afterwards, we always have a coaches would get together and hash out the practice and what we're going to do the next day. So we get together with the coaches and I go, Oh my God, did you hear what he said? He plays for the feeling. And I go, what do you think the greatest feeling is? And everybody goes, well, the greatest feeling, and I'll ask you, what do you think most people say the greatest feeling is when you play tennis? Most players. Well, I think it's a problem when they, they mention winning. I, don't, that's, I think that's the problem. That it, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah. Just, um, it's so many things, the privilege, the opportunity, um, 
the right, I mean, it's just um, to, yeah. to play the fun factor, you know, self-learning. I think it's all so many things except for winning. Yeah. And, and that, this is the thing. This is the reason it's so important. And I do this in corporate talks. I talk about this all the time is it's not winning. It's not winning. That's not the feeling that you, you know, the feeling that you have, first of all, I think is to play. Okay. To play. We live in a society of spectators. If you're like in tennis, you're a participant. You can be a participant until you're 80 years old and you're in your deathbed. You're a participant. You're not a spectator. I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be out there. That's the first feeling. The second feeling is to serve others. Okay. To get others to embrace that journey. And so serving others is, for example, on a team is playing, playing for those. And you could see that. That's the reason now teams in tennis are so important is that when you see the players now, what do they do between points? What does Taylor Fritz do? He looks to his coach, his team. You see everybody. I coached uh, Danielle Collins when uh, in World Team Tennis. No, I'm sorry. And Masters U. When we go to France every yeah, day. I'll ask you about that. But what happens, Danielle, I, the thing is, I, we talked about, we had Danielle with uh, several other players on the team. I can't remember who they were. It was Brandon Holt. And what happens is there was always, I want you to look to the bench after you do that, after you play this point in the Masters, you were playing for the US of A, basically you're playing for your teammates. And to look and to have the fist and have this positive, you know, physical um, statement. And, and so the second great feeling is, like I said, first is to play, second is to serve others, third is to do it well, to play well. That's a great feeling. But that means you're not, you're not kidding yourself and you're not taking shortcuts. And it means that you're doing the right thing and you have the right mindset and you have the right behavior, how you respond to mistakes and how you respond to failure. So that's a great feeling when you are in control, in control with the right tools that all of a sudden that's an incredible feeling. Then last but not least, but it is the last feeling, it's to win because it basically affirms your behavior. It affirms what you do. It affirms the time. It affirms the joy and the sorrow and the sadness and the frustration. So the feeling, you know, is, is, is everything. That's the reason I do what I do. Okay. Even coming on this podcast, I love the feeling. I love how I learn. I love how, you know, to the spoken word is how I have to clarify exactly what I, what I'm about and what I believe in. Okay. Cause I think also another thing is, and this is a great thing about Ted Lazo. Believe. Lazo. I used to always tell my players, believe, belong, become, right? Believe, belong, become. And then I had a player on my team and he one time said, and be kind. I went, Oh my God, that's an epiphany. I didn't come from me. It was believe, belong, become, become a champion, believe in it. So that means if you believe in something, every day you go out and you do the work. Yeah. Okay. And then you need to find people that belong. You have to find your community. You have to find your tribe and it might take time and it might, you have to, you have to have the courage to say, this is not the type of person or belief values that I b belong with. So you search out the right people. You search out your tribe, you search out your community. And then after I said this, so I went from believe, belong, become, be kind. And then the next one was, be humble, okay, on my team. And there's... Um, Nadal, Laver. There's yes. something unbelievable how humble they are. Yeah, fed. Yeah. 
I mean, the great players. And to be honest with you, this is a great subject for, I believe Djokovic is really trying to, I, I think Djokovic has grown a lot. I think there's a part of him that he's a warrior and he's going to slash your throat. But there's also a side of him that is classy in that. And I oh, think through, the runner-up speech this year at Wimbledon was just awesome. perfect. I know. It, and when he said he was lucky, he had yeah. the match points and yeah. against him in 2019. And yeah. Yeah. Just perfect. He's so there's humble. And those are the things you want to know the qualities of the great champion. It's like that. That's the reason the greatest thing that I think that's happened in sports is, is Ted Lasso. I, I love think, Ted Lasso. Ted, I love, I mean, oh my God, how can I? Because he talks to your soul and heart, my soul and heart, is this is what it's all about. I know you have. I, I, spent, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time in England. Uh, best man at my wedding was English. You know, listeners, I've known Greg now going way back when, but a lot of times, and I know you know people like this in tennis, where you just see him five minutes here and five minutes there yeah. at the NCAA tournament or where, wherever, Kalamazoo. But when your name comes up, I just go the journey you know, for you, for you, for you, it's not the destination. It's the journey. Yeah. I think with Agassi, for example, he certainly lost his Sampras a few, few times and he would just say, I'm happy to be part of it. Yeah. When pros, junior tennis players just don't realize this. And you, you, when you ask people who make it to the pro level and you ask them if they could look back, they go, I would just try to get better. Yeah. They wouldn't be so uptight about winning and losing. Yeah. And um, with pro players, when they get together, they don't talk about winning. They talk about how hard their coach pushed them and, and yeah. all the preparation and the practice. Um, this must be something you're talking about um, where happiness is a fleeting thought, but really joy, the joy of competition, the, the joy of team building. I'll just read off some names. I know there's others that I'm forgetting, but Raleigh Grossbaum. Yes. Um, the Princeton coach, is it Hume? Damien Hume. Hume. Yeah. I would like to ask you about the Shield brothers in particular. Yeah. Uh, your son, your daughter, um, a lot of people that you've worked with have coached college tennis. But why don't you just uh, expound a little about the, the the Shield brothers? I I've heard a lot of great things about them. Oh, they're they're amazing. <laughs> they're amazing. I saw that when they were fourteen and twelve years old. Uh, I was a national so I had this connection, and there was a bond because they were from. Uh, oh my God, a town in. <laughs> Grand Junction, Colorado. I'm a Boise. And there was that connection. Intermountain, yeah. Intermountain. And their dad used to drive them in a van to all the terms around the country. The dad had was terrified of flying. And so he would just he had this van and would drive them to tournaments in Florida and drive them to, you know, to LA. And when we had the Junior Davis Cup team, I invited him to be on the team. And when I was a national coach, not the Junior Davis Cup, just the Junior National Team. So the dad would drive them. We'd have a clinic and a workout for a week in St. Louis. The dad would drive him and say what time you want him there. I'd say, well, 7.30 in the morning. And the dad, right at 7.29, the dad always was right on time. Then he said, what time can, what time do I need to pick him up? And we'd say, well, gosh, we're going to go to Sunday. We're going to go to Sunday probably on 5. And so we'll be here at 5 o'clock or 5.15. I learned that the dad was always would come just a minute before and would always be so punctual. And then I realized that lots of times we would end at 5 and the dad would come up and then the dad would wait in the van and wait. And then so I start telling the dad to come. But, you know, when the camp ends and then they start grabbing their stuff, they're really not ready to go till 5.30, right? after a four-day, five-day camp. So they, they're fire and ice. Luke is the quiet gunslinger in those spaghetti Western movies. 
who never said a word. And Clancy's all over the place. So Luke is ice and Clancy is fire. Pretty close in age, right? Yeah, two years, a few years. And uh, they, uh, it's funny, I, I played him in doubles one time just to gave him enough matches to get in the NCAA. And they would, Clancy, the younger brother, was always yelling at Luke. Luke would never say a word. And he would yell at Luke if he missed a shot in that and would berate him, the younger brother. And Luke just, you know, stowed and just would get the job done. Luke's brain, he's, he's, he's a genius. He's a genius at competition. He's a genius at coaching now. He's done an unbelievable job at every place he's been at. Now he's at Boise State. Yep. And, uh, and Clancy's Clancy, at Arizona. And Clancy lives his life out on his on his sleeves. His heart is right there. You just, he's fiery, he's emotional, and he's, you know, passionate. And Luke's the same way, but Luke is not a microwave. He's a slow burning stove. And, and you, you know, and Clancy has dynamite, <laughs> but he gets played. They get players to play for him. And this is the whole key about coaching is to get the players to play for the right reasons. And sometimes I feel the right reasons to play for the coach. Okay. If the coach is understanding, if the coach is aware, if he's enlightened, okay, that the players will see that and they'll trust. And so a great thing for a good coach to do is to get the players to want to play for you for the right reasons, for the sense of learning, of growth, discovery, and to, you know, have this, this, this epiphany about what this game is all about. And about what it is it basically, I feel that to compete is, is to praise life is an ex, it's, it's a celebration of life. That's great. Praise life. And I, I, I'll say one thing. I have one saying that I say is success without celebration is failure. And I think that's one thing that's, I think celebration is positive because every culture in the world has celebration. I think coming back to your um, accident with your eye, when you're a kid, success, we always say the, the three, three S's in the word success sacrifice, struggle, and suffer. Yeah. They're, they're right within that word. Um, let me ask you this. Um, it's great to hear about uh, uh, Luke Shields, Clancy Shields. I talked to Clancy one time, uh, on the phone one time, uh, and having spent a lot of time in Ireland, I said, have you ever heard the song, Clancy Lord, Lord the Boom? You know, you <laughs> like, you know, I know you love music. You should, yeah. you should look that up. It's a great pub song, Clancy Lord the Boom. I used to tell Clancy there's that song by, um, uh, by oh my gosh, I just, Steve would know. Um, Clancy can't nowadays. Clancy can't even sing. There's that. I used to always tell that with Clancy. I says, Clancy, your voice. You think you're a rock star? <laughs> there's that song, Clancy. There's that saying in that song. Clancy can't even sing. I definitely need to learn from you and Steve more about music. <laughs> but I met one of Steve's members. Her first name is Sue, and I said, Have you heard Johnny Cash's song? A uh, boy named Sue, and I, I've, I've, I've printed that out and gone over the lyrics for mental toughness. Uh, let me ask you this question. You were born in 1952. I tell people, I want to ask you why, why, why. I'll read this list. It's pretty impressive. I think it's the best age group, uh, men or women, in American tennis. Jimmy Connors, 1952, number one. Brian Godfrey, born in 1952, number right. three. Roscoe Tanner, 1952, number four. Yes. Harold Salmon. Born in 52, number five. This is five in the world. Eddie Dibbs. Yep. You got to love Eddie, Eddie Dibbs. Yes. Uh, 51, and number five. Sandy Mayer was born in 52, number seven. And then Dick Stock had never be forgotten, a really good tennis player, 
born in 51, number eight. Why, why do you think um, that cluster of players, they were so good? Oh, that's a great reason. I think it was because tennis was coming on TV and they were, we were watching the slams then on TV and you were watching guys like Arthur Ashe and you're watching guys like Stan Smith. And there was that, uh, there is that, that story of them, the, like the, the good guys coming in. And uh, there is that passion, the pageant of, of playing that. And I think that's when the game started to, to reach out. But I think the, the greatest thing that it was inspiring was, uh, I think TV played a big part of it, to really, to, to get it to the masses. And that changed it forever, just to be well, honest. Well, you and I, uh, I tell people now they can't believe it, that we used to watch the Wimbledon final tape delayed. Yeah. You know, but now they had to have... They're just. I think young kids are so saturated. We were just. Yeah, it was amazing that we get to got to finally watch tennis on TV. Right. But for the right. longest time, it wasn't on TV because of the tiebreaker. They yes. couldn't. They couldn't package it. And James Van Allen in 1970, um, the tiebreaker came on the scene, and all of a sudden tennis could be put on TV because no. the matches would for a second be 22 to 20. Yes. Yes. And they and you're right about when they played Wimbledon, you you had to watch a replay for it when you're a kid. You know, and then things change immediately. It's it, it's so fast, and I think you know the Australian that, that it captured our imagination, and also they speak English, and you know with Laver and Rosewall and and that generation, and they were older than us, you know, and so we had that great competition between the, the Australians and the American players that were coming up. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's in all fairness, the players today, I think also when the 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and tennis was suppressed in the Eastern Bloc yeah. because it was an Olympic sport. And then, you know, tennis is really played all over the world now where it wasn't so much before, but uh, yeah, so many things. I think also back in the day, people played other age groups and, or they played other sports, excuse me, played other sports and, um, you know, understood college tennis, like an Arthur Ashe, a Stan Smith. Right. I always tell people, and they're shocked when they were freshmen, uh, they couldn't play. That was a developmental year. Yes. They couldn't, couldn't play as a freshman. Though I think and that's such a good point that you brought up. That was transitional in terms of the freshman then getting to play. And I think college tennis really played a big part in terms of the growth of the game of tennis. And he, especially when all of a sudden then at Dan McGill, when he started bringing in international guys to join the Georgia team, that was, you know, when he brought in the Swedes, really was, the trans, there's these people you can see different stages and, and you and I are kind of lucky because we were there, you know, just as young kids then, but watching the transformation of the game of tennis. Dan McGill. I, um, I went to Georgia one time early. Uh, my son was playing Ohio state and I went the day before and just wanted to sit around and talk to Manny Diaz. Cause he was taught how to play tennis by Welby Van Horn. I was taught to teach tennis by Welby Van Horn, but a big treat was, uh, Manny set it up where Dan McGill, he took me around and showed me his Hall of Fame. And I read his book. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Dan McGill. What, well, comes, what comes to your mind with Dan McGill? Well, he, he always called me kid. <laughs> he, he was, and I was kind of this, this excitable, you know, I, I started so young and then we were fortunate to start winning conferences and going to NCAAs. And, and I, 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 you know, my main goal every year was to beat a Pac-10 school. If I did that, then I'm on the map. You know, the, when I say that, I meant, you know, Stanford, UCLA, Cal, and SC. And that was our goal every year with our guys. They, we, and I would play them at their places. And, 
and uh, and I always had after a while, you know, we we would finally get a, we'd get a win. You know, every one or two years we get a win out of the Big Four. And I think a lot of it too, in terms of scheduling, being a college coach and a young coach, was just get along with everybody. You know, so I always was really aware of not stepping on any toes and showing a lot of respect for Gould, Billy Wright. Billy Wright became my first good friend. Then Dick Leach and I became really good friends. Uh, Tolley was just on the going out. George Tolley. George Tolley at SC. And so I was with him, and I always tried to pick his brain. And George was really a gracious guy. But the guys that – so the, the one thing, too, people don't understand, and I, I need to spell I used to ask questions a lot with the top coaches when I was a young 20-year-old. And – I and get along, so I'd always ask him to go to dinner or something, or go out for a glass of, of coffee, and I'd just ask him about you know team, you know talking about creating a team environment. How do you how do you work with a really gifted player, and how do you work with the guys at number six, seven, eight, nine that are fighting for a position? So I, I felt that was one thing. I think people skills, if you you know, to be really honest. I feel my people skills were really good as a young man and I really was wanted to learn. And so I, and my, my first best friend on that group was Bill Wright. And so Bill then came down to play us. And, uh, and then I played, um, you know, Pepperdine came down to play us. Um, that was with uh, Alan, Fox. Alan Fox. And Alan Fox, after we played him, we never wanted to play me down at, at Irvine anymore because we beat him. But Alan and I became good friends. And Alan, Alan was a character. You know, Alan was a really big character. But Parent, I loved Parents him. should read the book, um, If I'm the Better Player, Why Don't I Win? But yeah. Alan Fox, and I didn't interrupt you, but I used to, training tennis teachers, uh, say, well, if, with your resume, if you could be top 10 in the world, which he was. Yes. If you could get a PhD, which he got, which, he, which he, he had that as accomplishment, and then also be very, very good at what you do. Yeah. Um, Did you but, remember a guy named Larry Nagler? By name. By name. He was a basketball player and a tennis player at UCLA, and a good friend. He played doubles with Allen when they were play pro. Yeah. And I got to be good friends with him. I, yeah, I've never met him. With um, George Tolley, um, yeah, so Stan Smith really s sings his praises about what he did his freshman year. And Stan Smith at one time, I think he maybe was 14. The story is he was turned down to be a ball boy, ball boy because he wasn't coordinated enough. Yeah, yeah. And talked about when he was there. It's kind of like John Wooden from UCLA basketball. Okay, and I know Smith went to USC, but we're gonna teach out of volley. But I was at the NCAs. This is a spectator, but I was with Stan Smith, Peter Smith, so three three Smiths. And uh, but anyway, um, Stan was saying the best coach ever in college tennis was his coach George Tolley. Right. And then I said to him, uh, what about Jim Verdick? And he kind of looked at me and he said, my dad used to put me on a bus on a week, the weekends I didn't have tournament every Saturday. And one of Jim's kids could beat him. I don't know if it was Randy or Doug could have yeah. beat him 6060. Um, but you were inducted into the Hall of Fame with, with Doug. Yeah. Um, do you know Doug as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a little bit about the Verdick family and yeah, Doug, the, Doug Verdick. Yeah, they were. And, and Jim was this bull of a man. You know, I mean, he looked like a bulldog, and but he yeah. was a bulldog, the, the Redland Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah. and he, he and so I uh, played him when I was at Santa Barbara, and played him for a year or two at UC Irvine before he retired. I mean, he was a legend, and everybody. You yeah, know, you need to listen to our podcast. We have, I think, one or two dedicated to Jim. He's one of our pillars, and then Doug was on one of our podcasts. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. they were. They, they, there was such great 
people that really kind of, and I, I'm so pleased that in some ways that like the ITA still tr honors like some of the greats of the game who, who've really impact tennis in a positive way. And uh, so I just wish that more juniors sometimes, and I think there is a pathway and this is, you know, I'm curious to see how you feel. I, I always really believe that the, the college is, is a really viable pathway for players to make it on the pro circuit as well. There's going to be some guys, you know, like, you know, like Taylor Fritz, Fritz, you know, yeah. Okay. He's gifted, you know, he's making it, he's doing it, but you know, it's like Chris Eubanks, just, it's just great because the players need to know that the college route is a great route to turn pro and they can use it if they use it the right way and they get the right help and instruction and you know yeah, one thought i have on that though is that I, I do think that when they go um don't go in january don't take the fall season off to play pro tournaments don't show up in january and just start playing for the team i think to go be on the team and then really one year is a blink of an eye. I think if they say, hey, just go and, and and do it for at least two years. Right. That's what I would recommend. Right. No, I'm totally behind you on that. I am totally. Because the whole thing is, is that I think some players get so, they can't handle because it's just them against the world. It's them against the world. And they go out there and there's so much frustration. There's so much. you got to learn how to lose on the pro circuit. And you got to learn how to navigate these troubled waters and i don't think that they're emotionally and uh emotionally and spiritually and physically ready sometimes for the demands that go out there you know and to go out there and get on the you know challenge the futures and challengers it, it's it's not a pretty life and so i think those years of maturing as a freshman 18 19 years old and i totally agree with you that taking the fall off is BS. It's, it's baloney. And, uh, the, the next thing is, is give a year or two and then be ready to go. And then, but they get this, this fellowship, this brotherhood. And the thing is, I think players learn the best from their peers. I think they really learn from their peers. I think it's so powerful. You say it all the time. Learn to be on a team. Yeah. Be yeah. a good teammate. And I believe that's what it says on Mickey Mail's tombstone. <laughs> I hope is, so. is it, no, he want I, I, I have to yeah. check that, but I was a good teammate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Isn't, I think what you're talking about is, you know, to be a champion or to have a championship team, you have to have championship people that are good people. Okay. Good people make great things happen. And if you look at a lot of the great coaches, Dick Gould, in a lot of ways, if you, if you notice one thing, Dick Gould built better men. I really believe that. I saw him, how he treated his athletes. And, you know, he had his way. And so did Dick Leach. And so did, you know, Dan McGill. And, I mean, there's a lot of great guys out there that I've seen that really, you know, what they wanted. And I felt, Billy Wright told me this when he was at Berkeley. He says, he says, the most important thing is have great guys. And he always, you know, remember Billy, the short guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always had his basketball and a volleyball and a football. When he'd go and he'd open up and jump rope. And so whenever we went to tournaments to recruit that, I'd get together and we'd play with each other. We were just like kids. And 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 I always remember the epiphany. He says, great guys make great teams. Great guys make great teams. Great teams make great players. Great guys make great teams. Great teams make great players. And so I think in terms of the people that we're throwing out there, and if you look at, um, if you look at a uh, lot of um, players now in the pro circuit, they have to have a team. 
they've, they've gotten into it. They realize that they have someone, when they go to a tournament, they have their teams. You know, you look at it, they have their physio, they have their coach, they have their hitting partner. Now, that's hard to do, but for them to attain the greatest, that's what they need, is to have that, that support system that will lift them up and pick them up. Pick them up and keep them up. And I think that's what the great things about college tennis is, is you have that. You have the great teams have this system, has these rituals, has a tradition in terms of picking each other up and lifting them up. When I was going to tell you this quick story yeah, about Danielle Collins. She was, remember, she got to the finals of the Australian at, mm-hmm. uh, during COVID. So she's playing in front of nobody. And I used to always say, I said this earlier, success without celebration is failure. Every You need to ha- always have celebration around this game if that's what motivates you is the celebration is the feeling of celebration remember the feeling the feeling of exaltation like i've done it i've done it i've done it especially if you've done it the right way you really truly rejoice and can celebrate and have that festival so she and i stayed in contact after she played on the master what a fighter and she loved the Masters, you, she loved playing for Virginia. That is my next question. Have you talked about that? But go ahead, Daniel Collins. So she she is at, and so, I mean, I'm writing her and I'm going, you know, there's nobody to watch her. And so, you know, and the story is she, you know, and I wrote, you know, make friends and get them tickets to come watch you. So did you see her crowd at the, when she was in the finals, the French, I mean, the Australian? is there are four Aussie guys that were going, oi, 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 oi. So she met them at a bar, and she goes, would you guys, and they go, are you a tennis player? And she goes, yeah. And they say, oh, well, blimey, mate, that's great. You know, you two, uh, this is tremendous. And so she goes, she gave them four tickets, and that's the extent. She had nobody there, nobody to watch her. So there's these four Aussies in the stands wearing green, green and Yellows cheering for Daniel Collins. So I think it's a great story in terms of that, that you, you have to have that support system. You know, tennis is a lonely sport. And that's the yeah. reason everywhere you can. Knockout sport. Oh, yeah. I thought the great thing is about housing. You know, for my whole career, my team's house to people's homes. I would find people. I'd call my friends up in different towns, call up in Denver and say, can you guys get me a place to stay? And there's always families will bring kids in. And you know what happens? Those people then, what do they do? They go out and they watch my players play. And there's almost getting to the point, they're getting to the point that they're playing for others, not just for themselves. I think that's a big key to get someone who plays for others for the right reason. Sometimes parents are not the right reason. But if a great coach is the players love to perform for their coach, for their physio, for their friends, you know, for their girlfriends or whatever, but find that crew, the people that house them. In the old days, when the players were on the circuit, they'd always stay at housing, right? Every tournament had housing. I used it until I got a new idea at UC Irvine, I mean, Boise State. And he said, you can't house the people's homes anymore. And that's basically interesting. Right. That was when, because my guys never stayed in hotels. Wow. We always had people house them. That's the thing is we'd be playing UCLA down at UCLA. We'd stay with some people from Westwood or from that area. And they're cheering like crazy for us. Against <laughs> the, you know, and when we go to right. Alabama, same thing. I have all these people in Montgomery, Alabama, they house our guys. Bill Harris, uh, amazing culture in central New York, Fayetteville Manly High School. He started as a volunteer. Cross country coach. His, his book is uh, again amazing racers, and his whole thing. There's many uh, Stoke and Spartan. 
but he wants when the kids are running is to think about their teammates pain you know wow you know it's like hey everybody out here is hurting but tell us a little about i know it had a hiccup the 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 i i know that uh uh, coaches, players I've worked with directly, indirectly have been part of it. Uh, it's it's back on. It was offered like a three year hiccup. The, the, uh, the you call it Master U, where the college players go to France. Yes. Talk, about, talk about that experience. It's it's unbelievable experience. I love it. I've you done still it. do that. I still do that. We uh, I've done it fourteen years. Um, we take our top American collegiate players and we play in the world championships, and uh, we play the basically. To be honest with you, a lot of the teams have players that played American college tennis that are on the pro circuit and they've gone and they have to be in college in some state or form. The British are really good at it. And so are the French because they have universities where they go to, then they allow them to go play the circuit and they go on to play ATP or WTA. And uh, we take our top, our players have to be, you know, enrolled on a team in the U S and uh, we go and play there in a system. The system is uh, we play uh, two boys, uh, men's singles, two women's singles, and then men's doubles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles. And every match is worth a point. So it lasts one match lasts all day because we play on one court. So we'll start wow. off. You start off with uh, – the singles and it goes like number two women singles, number two men singles, number one women singles, number one men singles. Then it goes to women's doubles, men's doubles, and then mixed doubles. So we've had Mackie McDonald play on the team, Austin Krejcik play on the team, Stevie Johnson's played on our team, Danielle Collins has played on our team, Robin Anderson, all oh, the girls, that, um, some girls have done really well in the doubles, and I'm sp spacing out on their names. Uh, but then we've had. Um, Chris Eubanks just recently, uh, Brandon Holt, who who's done pretty well, and so and Marcus Giron, who's on the circuits. All those guys were on that path with the Masters U, and the Masters U is is basically it's an intense nine ten days. We go there, we do a lot of team building, lots of team building, and it's great though. They have to talk about what their greatest experience in tennis was and what their worst experience it's, was. It's during the uh, semester break, December yeah. January. Yeah, we go right after we leave during Thanksgiving, and then uh, it's it's kind of a, a for some teams it's good because they have a break, and other teams they have to go back and take their finals. So what happens is it's just not a part. We're there. It's incredibly intense. You know, we train and we play, and then the kids are studying. And uh, but it's worth it. And it's been everyone that's ever done it. I think it's been a joyous experience. It's and exhausting. So the, the, the level of play. Uh, I've heard people say, "Well, the level of U.S. college students is so high." And how is it? No, it's still competitive. No, it's really competitive. It's really competitive. A lot of the players from like the U.K. and from France are guys on the circuit and players on the circuit that are, um, are taking, they train like at the national training center for England is at the Bath university. And so they have a, you know, a training center for the British and all their guys that are in college that they're trying to get them on the pros. So they play them on the professional circuit and they also represent, you know, they go, they take classes at Bath. It's the same thing for the players in France. And the Chinese were doing. They have these uh, academies where they, th and so they just basically 
there's not, it's not really tied on rules about how many units you're taking or how many classes you're taking. It is for us, for the Americans, but it's not for the other countries. The Russians were coming. They just had training centers. They'd send the Russian team over. And, uh, you know, we played in the finals a few times and beat them. And it was, you know, they were part of it. The Chinese sent teams. Uh, we have the Swiss just joined us this last year. You have to qualify basically if around the you have to qualify to get into the tournament we have uh, basically the stalwarts of it is the english the british i'm the english uh the french the germans and um the italians for a while were sending a team but if a team's really weak then they bring other teams oh belgium's really strong and germany's really strong so they come out and play well, let's do the same thing that we did earlier with uh what comes to your mind uh you did it with some some uh, players as juniors now as college players what comes to your mind uh with Mackenzie mcdonald when you when he was with you oh my god he was uh mckenzie's a delightful guy he loved playing on a team which is obvious he won the ncaa's for ucla and singles, singles doubles right arthur ash uh, yeah and he loved playing he uh, he's he's got a heart of gold he's his work ethic is i mean he's a dream to coach his work ethic is is exemplary and he um he he questions in, in a really positive way like what do you think about this what uh, i'm serving here it's not you know and then the changeovers but also in the practices and uh he, he's i i really he's he's like one of my favorites to, so fast yeah so fast one thing uh during covid i wouldn't say i really coached mckenzie but he, you know he was at my place for three weeks and um I asked him so many questions, but one thing that's amazing is not only did he go to UCLA on a tennis scholarship, his sister went on a scholarship oh. for gymnastics. And you got to think, well, and I just said, tell me, tell me, tell me. And I think I've always teased, I go, he used to, used to tell me, say, the USTA should hire your father. <laughs> because I mean, <laughs> yes. that, that's amazing feat. No, and his dad was, uh, his dad's a great guy. His dad was always in the background. I never knew who his dad was for a long time when, during the juniors. But Mackenzie used to play against my son in the junior tournaments. So they're the, they're the same age. And, uh, you know, so I knew him. And then I finally realized that was Mackenzie's dad that, you know, was was with him. And so Rosie did a great job. Yeah. Rosie yeah. Very yeah, he, did he's very work. well taught. Yeah. Very, yeah. very well taught. So fast. Uh, Tracy Austin's kid, Brandon Holt. Oh, he's a delightful guy. Uh, he's delightful. He's, you know, I, I think I, it, the pro turn, he's got to be on, on cylinders because he's not a really physical player, but he's, you know, he's, his weapon is just his tenacity and his, and his, and his, his head. He's got to, And I, I pray that he does well out there. And I hope, I hope he does. Cause he's, he's, he's such a, uh, he illuminates guys. He's like, he's one of my favorites. And, uh, he's uh he's quick and he's a great competitor and he um is is brilliant in terms of he understands him his his iq his tennis iq is is really high uh and he you know he's uh he's one thing too is he's really funny and he has uh he's great in a team concept and you know this is a thing some this is a thing i think we need to develop a team concept for a lot of players that maybe that aren't the most you know gifted but once you put them in a team concept when they're playing with their teammates and their soul brothers and their soul sisters and have a nourishing environment they will blossom they will blossom 
And that's the way it is with Brandon. Brandon did really well in college. He did really well on the master's team. He's had some good results out in the circuit, but he needs that team. He needs the, the, the camaraderie. He needs the traditions. He needs the music. He needs the, the, you know, just the fellowship and the brotherhood and sisterhood. Being way on the outside and, you know, he beats Taylor Fritz. They grew up together. Yeah. To me, that's not so much a shocker. He's that, you know, you just know he's played him and practiced with him. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about, I had my notes, so I think we can uh, go on to another player. I, I did hear a, a good friend of mine say about Daniel Collins, if I'm walking down the street, I'm going to be mugged. I'd like to be with her. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. how about Austin Krychek? Oh, Austin. I love Austin. He's number one in the world in doubles. That's number it. one in the world right now. So, you know, see, as a coach, yeah, as a coach that just had a small little impact on them you know what i mean because there's been a lot of people that have really a family a group a community that's raised these guys and just to be able to have spent two years uh kind of with austin is he's got a heart of gold and he's he's the type of guy that's a good down home guy and um he really i i was a, was a great competitor for us in the masters you and he was on my first was it my first masters use team I think it might have been, but he was on this team with Stevie Johnson and uh, we lost, we were down three to one in the singles. So when it got to the doubles, we had to win all three doubles against the French in front of three, 3,500 people packed in this tennis gy gymnasium. And, and Austin was so, I, Austin plays well when he's playing for others. Austin plays well when he plays on a team. When it's just about him, and he really thrives in the team environment. And that's the reason he's such a good doubles player. He's the type of guy that he could never have a beer alone. It, the only time he'd ever have a beer is if he had a mate or a, a friend with him. Yeah, he's the kind of guy, no enemies. No, everybody loves Austin. That's yeah, the reason right. everybody rejoices in his success. It's the same thing I think about guys. Like, remember I said about good people make great teams? Good people are basically the ones that are going to be the greatest players. And I think Rafa's a really great person. Fed's a great person. And I think Djokovic is wise enough and realize, I don't need to be such a jerk out here. And that and I need to embrace this community. I need to embrace the world. And I can't be too much of a rebel, you know, in this because that's where his greatness is going to be solidified. Let me tell you a story about Stevie Johnson. And I, I've just met him. You know, I've certainly said, ah, I think he can serve in volume doubles. I mean, I, you know, but Stevie Johnson, so he doesn't register to play in the Australian Open. His ranking's high enough to be in the Australian Open. So I'm with Austin and I take, I go with him to Atlanta and it's a wild card for a berth, a place in the Australian Open draw. So they have a meeting with everyone and they have these really nice big chocolate chip cookies and they offer them to everyone. Uh, and everybody turned the chocolate chip cookies down. So Stevie Johnson comes into the room late, just a couple minutes late. And then uh, there's just this big, huge bowl of chocolate chip cookies. So he takes two. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, he wins. He, I mean, he didn't even have to be there. He was already good enough to be in the draw, hot, ranked high enough. So. Yeah. I know it might make the nutritionist roll their eyes a little bit, but sometimes I think you need to have a chocolate chip cookie. I think you could be uh, a little bit I, I think too it, uptight. What do you I, think? What comes to your mind? You think of Stevie Johnson? Oh, I mean, he. I he remember was, when he was dominating college tennis. That was a, he was amazing. He, I mean, we. I thought I was going to get him to Boise State. We. Wow. I was really close to the dad and to Stevie. I had worked with Stevie a lot in the junior national team, and I provided you know opportunities for him to 
uh, you know, I, I was a national coach then. And so I went back to Boise State and I had the Shields brothers. And here we had a team that was top 10 in the country. And so we were talking to them and I had got down to them and it looked all systems were to go. And I thought, I thought for sure that, that Stevie would be a great tennis player, a great college player. Okay. And the whole thing, my whole sell to him is you come and play for us with the Shields brothers. I had another guy by the name of Kane Feeder who had been out and injured. He only really played one year for us his senior year, but he had been number one in the U.S. and the juniors at one time. And so I had this group of guys, and I'm thinking, here's a national championship team. And I was, you know, knocking on the door, making the you know, the phone calls, and had Stevie come up on a visit. And his dad came up, and his dad and I were really close friends because I had been involved with Stevie when he was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. I was in a coaching program with him, and then he's on our junior national team now. So at the last second, and he had given us a verbal commitment, and at the last second, um, Peter Smith lost Bradley Klon to Stanford, and he had a scholarship. And at the last second, Peter calls up Stevie, who had given us a verbal, and said, hey, listen, I want you to come down, bring your dad down to USC or up to USC and check us out. And he offered him a scholarship right there on the spot. Next thing I know, last second, I found out Stevie wasn't going to Boise State. Mm. And I spent five nights, sleepless nights, just groaning and oh. cursing the last name Smith. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, kidding, Peter. Here's, uh, here's something I know that you've heard. You uh, mentioned Stevie Johnson's father. He used to have a great line um, and he passed away at such an early mm -hmm. age, but he said, tennis lets you know who you are. Yeah. That's a great line. I loved every time we would go down to Southern California to play at UCLA, Pepperdine and SC in San Diego. Uh, uh, Stevie's dad would be at the matches. He'd come watch us play. We got to be really close friends. I didn't know him that well, but a, a big honor for me. I can think of a few. Uh, one time I had the, West Point tennis team spend, spend spring break with me. That was kind of cool. But uh, I was out at Indy Wells and Steve Johnson Sr. just asked if he could sit with me because he listens to our content online. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Giron, big legs. What do you think of that guy? I think he's he can move. He's out there. He's doing well. Yeah. And he's he, he's this, uh, Marcus is, uh, I kind of look at him as a guy that he, he's the guy in, grad school in the library studying on Friday night, you know, in some way. The, when he was around me, he was really deliberate. He was really focused. He's really driven. And, uh, had some injuries as well here recently. And he's had, and he's come, come, come back from that. And he's come back from it and he's got, you know, he's got a, he's, he's got a beautiful soul. I love the guy. And he's, he deserves all the success that he can get. I'm praying that he's going to, he's going to come. I think he's going to come around. I mean, I think he's really make a big impact. I'm, what's his ranking right now? The uh, ATP. I'm not I'm sure, a, but I, I think that he's uh, very close. To, he's been close to cracking the top 50. Yeah. And he's always oh, just knocking on the door. And I just, he just needs that one big win. It's kind of like when Mackie beat uh, Nadal, you know, that was like, that was an epiphany. And, and that was the doors, the gates of heaven. St. Peter is going to open up those gates. Now, come on in. 
come on, you've earned it. And Marcus, I, I do look at the results a lot and I'm always looking to see how well, um, we have that break. Marcos has, yeah. He needs that breakthrough and a lot of good things that happen. I think the Americans, I think, uh, you know, they'll have coaches in their teams. I, I just sometimes hope, wish that, and I don't know because I'm not, I don't travel in the pro circuit. I don't watch. I talk to Brad and I go to the, some of the slams and I am around them, but I, I hope that they're, and I had this feeling that a lot of them, they're, they're helping each other, you know, get on my shoulders and jump it, you know, let's get into the top 10, let's get in the top 20. Yes, I would say the last one, but uh, uh, Robin Anderson, we actually had a podcast with Robin, but our, my amateur efforts uh, with these podcasts, it was just one that we uh, had problems with as far as production, but uh, what comes to your mind with her? Oh, what an athlete. And yeah. she's, she's five, what, five foot three too. Yeah. And quick and strong and strong. Uh, she's, um, you know, personalities that's radiant, you know, great. Like, it's amazing. All these players talk about they're just great people and they're a joy to coach. And uh, she was, she played on our team for two years uh, oh, in wow. the Masters U. Yeah, I've, and, I've spent time coaching her. Stage fright, though, I think that's something you could touch upon. Uh, I was at the NCAs and, and uh, Stella Sampras told me that Robin was concerned if the matches were going to be on TV. Oh, no. Because she was just a bit nervous. Um, yeah. Uh, I think TFO, uh, I just was around him for two weeks, don't really know him, but my son knows him. And yeah. That guy has no stage fright. What, what are your comments on stage fright? I think that could be, you know, Robin's done well. I mean, to be one of the best juniors in the U.S. Yes. and 150 in the world, I mean, yeah. that's not easy. Yeah. But no, that, but she did. She cared. You know, the, uh, the stage fright, sometimes I, I the, if you care, it, you know, if it's, if it's the stage fright, because you care so much that you have to just, enjoy the process it's kind of like it's it's one thing it's almost like what you have to do is get to this mantra that you're not going out to win the match you're not going out to win the set you're not going out to win the game you're not going out to win the point you're going out to win the ball just the ball hit that ball a lot in training that we do it's like it goes back to consistency is count how many balls you can hit you know and this you get the college guys and but you have to turn on the music. You got to throw in some reggae with this. Is okay, guys. Who's going to hit? They'll have the longest rally. Now the thing is, you're not going to be just hitting moon balls and just push. I want you hitting out like an accelerating racket hit. I want you moving. But who can keep the ball in play the longest? Well, you need. Then they realize there's a camaraderie, right? I'm going to hit the ball deep, but I'm going to give pace, and they move back a little bit, and they start shaping the ball. And, uh, and so it's, it, but they're counting each ball one. And if they start thinking, oh my God, I almost got like 50 or 60 or whatever balls it is, they screwed up. They got to just go that ball one. The next one I'm going to do is make the second one. I know, um, I saw you do this years ago at a conference and, uh, it's just something that stuck with me is that you can have really good players do around the world. Yeah. And yeah. That, you know, yeah. that's all oh, that's just for little kids, but I remember seeing no. you do that one time. Well, it's, it's, isn't it the child and the athlete? I mean, the greatest tennis players, Borg had a child in when he played. So did Macro. Macro was this, this, this fiery, rambunctious, genius kid who just demand, you know what I mean? But he was playing. He, he loved to compete. And, and that's the whole, you know, it, the most important thing is not loving, you know, it's, it's love to play is great. Love to win is great, but loving to compete is the greatest. Now, when you were talking about Robin, Robin had a heart of gold. Great but, kid, yeah. And her dad was a former pro football player. Demon. Mike, 
I, I don't, I didn't, I know Demon. I don't know. But he was an that. athlete. And so yeah. I think she was trying almost. I think he was a sprinter. I mean, yeah. the, the other, one of his kids is a sprinter. I'm yeah. not sure. But, um, but they, she was such a great athlete and she cared and she really wanted to do so well. It's almost like you have to embrace them with the wins and losses. It's not about winning and losing. It's about competing, right? Yeah. I mean, winning and losing is a byproduct of that. And it's really the people that can embrace. I think, and, and I, I really appreciate your thought on this is it's almost like it's it's loving to compete and it's learning i mean you learn so much and usually sometimes the best way to learn is to lose you know it's uh, uh, but what did you learn from that what'd your opponent do well yeah bill Tilden, and tennis players are born out of defeat yep yep no undefeated tennis players uh, this is not somebody from your program in france but uh someone where you and i had a connection going back to the 70s late late 70s yes ruben percheck comes oh, to your mind ruben we called him colombo <laughs> he was Columbia. he was on my first team that reached the ncaa's so i was at irvine and it was like our second and third year he's brilliant he's loyal to the core uh and he's um i i and he really helped us get into the NCAA. I mean, he's funny he had a sense of humor that was really funny guy yeah. really funny and joyous and he now is like a phd uh isn't he he's he's on the medical staff at stanford i believe wellness uh yeah. with uh, you could look him up on youtube he's a prolific speaker uh but yeah he was on the staff at stanford he, he called me up one time from spain and he he just didn't like pro tennis i mean yeah. it wasn't for him i yeah. mean with uh but for me Kim Wittenberg, who was an assistant pro way back when at the, I John, know Kim. Wayne, yes. at the John Wayne Tennis Club, yes. he brought Ruben to work with me. Then uh, I worked with Ruben. Ruben's mother, the two of them, lived at Cota de Casa for an entire summer. Yeah. And uh, it was a great, great thing where Vic worked with them. I remember Vic filming Ruben, and we were working with Chevy Chase, the, mm -hmm. the, the, yeah, the, play, the, the comedian, comedian, the writer, the movie star. And it was, we went was at the U.S. Open, and uh, I remember the, the the teachers' conference was huge back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was going to ask about Doug McCurdy. I could do that next. Next, I know that uh, he he used to have a big role in making that happen with Eve Craft. But um, yeah, Ruben, uh, he hit the ball really well. I mean, he was fortunate to spend that time with Vic. He ended up being on the Davis Cup team, yeah. but uh, just. He just didn't stay with it, and he was right there playing like Martin Heidi and Sundstrom and yeah. guys that became really world classy. He was quite good, but uh, yeah, well, let's go quickly here on a few more things. What about Doug McCurdy? Oh, Doug McCurdy's—he uh, he brought you into the UCA, yeah, right? Yeah, he did, and I mean, I owe so much to him. And he is—he is a character. He's brilliant. He's incredibly hardworking. He's eccentric, uh, and I loved every bit about him. I mean, he would one time. <laughs> He had his family in a in a in a van, a camper van, or and he was he drives around the country with his wife and his kid uh, doing that. But he had a great vision for the um, USTA, and we had unbelievable meetings. He was funny, and he could trans. He could um, he could bring a lot of different egos and coaches together and get them uh, united in terms of the cause. I think and. A lot of ways, I think the USTA did themselves a great disservice when there was that shakeup, you know, with uh, player development 
And uh, didn't everybody have to uh, reapply? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they dropped the program and started it, again. Started and, all over. Yeah, and you had people like Stan Smith was there working with us, Tom Gullickson, Jose Garris. Yeah, Doug. Doug was the one to put that together because everybody loved Doug, and Doug's personality is, you know, is so inviting and is so, you know, he's so so worldly too with what he did with the ITF. Yeah, yeah, he's brilliant. The guy's brilliant. Weren't weren't you hired to, like, say, in the Inner Mountain to to look for like? The, right. Clint, the, the shield brothers right yeah yeah that's, that was my job that was your job well i had um i had i was uh super the director i don't know what how they called it i was uh i had ID, was, uh, professor, uh, id uh talent id yeah and my job was the western united states i was in charge of we had elliot in uh southern california la basically uh valerie zingafus was with san diego john hubble was northern cal and I was in charge of the Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and uh, Idaho. So I had the we had the West, and so we all had responsibilities. Obviously, we had two coaches in Southern Cal. We had Valerie and Elliot. And we had John Hubble in Northern Cal, and then um, those were, that was our staff. I have, there's three of four of us, and um, yeah, and, and Doug was re- responsible for it. And we were getting we were getting places. We were doing well. We had Andy, and you know we had. Oh my God, we had several kids that were, well, and Andy had did the transition from juniors into the pros. And so he was part of our transition. Marty Fish was part of that. It was great. And what we were trying to do and what Doug realized, and it was so beautiful. That's the reason he wanted some college coaches like John Hubble and myself. And there was, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember some of the other coaches. But what he wanted to do is he wanted people, he wanted Americans to, um, to embrace this idea that we're Americans, we're all on the same team, and we're all going to be here for each other, and we're going to bring them together, and that there was not only the educational and the training and the competing, there's also the social things that to try to try integrate the complete player, and the fact that they we belong to something, we belong to American USA tennis, and the coaches that all we all embraced it, we all embraced it. And we all felt like this is a, this is the way it go. We had Stan Smith was at all our meetings. He was one of our coaches. Like I said, uh, we had and we had great minds. Paul then came in, but uh, Paul came in, and uh, Anna Cone was in it. And then when Doug left, then Paul took over as the chairman. Now it's uh, was Martin Blackman. I think Martin's still doing it. Yeah, he's the GM this still. Yeah, so I'm part of. You know, now what I like my goal is to still keep the USTA actively involved with the college program that the college players we do have a pathway we do have great kids that could be world-class players on the pro circuit that are collegiate players but please provide them the chance to compete internationally on during the times off their summer and during during the christmas time you know when you do the masters you i I do think there's so many great people and great causes currently and in the past that have been with the usta they got player development 1987 but for my position, it's not really uh, at the level that you were at with the USTA or with you know top junior, or top college tennis players onto the pros. 
I think in American tennis, we do need to do a much, much better job with how we teach kids when they're seven, eight, nine years old. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, I'll, I'll skip this question. Raleigh Grossbaum, you know, he asked me to say, how, yeah. how do you get top players to go to Boise State? I think what people need to do is just listen to this podcast. And they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll know well, how, how you well, did that. Especially with, uh, with Luke there and Beck Rogar there, they, uh, they're awesome. And uh, Luke... Luke won the, you know, this is the funny thing about the Shields brothers is, you know, they played each other. It's Arizona was top 10, 12, 13 around there in the, in the national rankings. And Boise State played Arizona in the first round of the NCAAs this year, which was a war and a battle. And, uh, and uh, it was great. It's, it just captures the imagination, I think, of, to have these two farm boys from Grand Junction coaching teams competing and fighting in the NCAAs. It's kind of on the basketball side. It was the Hurley family. And now it's wow, the, what a family. And the Shields are going to, you know, right now the dominant team in the Pac-10 is Arizona with Clancy Shields. And uh, it's, it's, it's joyous to see those. And like you said, I'm really proud of the, I'm really proud of how many guys that have played for me are college coaches. I mean, I've got like 12 guys that are That's out great. there. Yeah. Small one thing about you just mentioned that uh, I know uh, Steve Campbell would understand this. Uh, we had this program where you could, we were training to become tennis teachers. And then there's only so much time in the day, but if people really want to study character, they just need to go to YouTube and, and, and study the Hurley basketball story. Yes. Family from New Jersey. Yeah. With um, you touched upon this earlier and obviously uh, it's just so evident that you're a giver, not a taker. You mentioned going to Ghana. Um, I was asked by Dick, Dick Waltman, mm -hmm. who I met, very good tennis player. I think he was Rollins where he played. And he asked me if you know Greg Patton, he wanted to talk <laughs> to you. And the reason he wanted to talk to you is that his father, I believe it was his father, one of his parents was you know, near death and he had to leave. And then you went and tell us that story that you almost died. And he wanted yeah. to call you all these years later. And yeah. He, he wanted to call you and thank you. Tell us about <laughs> that experience. Well, I was... I, you know, I was a 20 year old, 21 year old that left college, you know, cause I could, you know, my mom was too concerned about everybody else and getting them through school. And I, uh, was teaching tennis for the city of Santa Barbara, playing on the team at UCSB was a, you know, with one of the team captains. And here comes this guy up to the community courts, went out to UCSB and was looking for, he went to the municipal tennis courts where I was trying to earn some extra money at night and asked me if I would want to go to Ghana to be a national coach. And I said, oh my God, I'll do it in a heartbeat. And I went over there and I was in Ghana for, oh boy, I don't know how long, but while I was in Ghana, I, I brought, I didn't bring a surfboard. I brought a boogie board. Cause I did have, we had, you know, we lived, every in my family surfed. So I, I couldn't take a surfboard cause it's too expensive and they were kind of, you know, it was so big. So I bought a little boogie board. I got a boogie board when they were coming out and I went to Ghana and I was coaching their national team. I was trying to develop players to go. And the ironic thing is I tried to take the team to South Africa, but because of our part, our part died, I couldn't do it. And that was a, like, I was naive. I was naive. I didn't, I, we got to go to South Africa. And this first thing I said, and the Ghanaians that were involved with the program said, we can't go. We can't, they won't play. African countries can't get into play there. It's only white players. So I even wrote a few letters to USTA, like <laughs> the USDA or the, I can't remember who I wrote. So I was trying to be the first 
person to bring Ghanaians to South Africa. But so, but we played there and I loved every second of it. And I was with two brothers, Joe and Tim Brooks were the other coaches, two brothers. So there's three of us. And um, I got dysentery and I don't know. I just, and it hit me fast. Next thing I know I was in a hospital and in the hospital, the nurses, they, even if the nurses were there, they, if they were tired, they would just get into a bed in this ward and go to sleep and you needed people to feed you. And they, you know, so the Peace Corps was having this guy come a lot, you know, over to, to feed me, bring me food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And as soon as I could, as soon as I um, was healthy enough, the Peace Corps flew me out. I had no choice. All I knew is I was on a plane. I was just, and I went to DC. I was in a hospital in DC for around a week. And then they flew me to Santa Barbara. I got better for like two days. And the next thing I know, I was back in a hospital. And so I'm skinny. And I, I, <laughs> I've always been skinny since then. I lost all my weight. <laughs> I've been so, but it was, was a, so it, the way then I went to Westmont, I was there for a month. My cook, my AD at Santa Barbara hired me because I knew he remembered their coach left. And so it's just pure luck. I was going to play at this Christian school, which I couldn't, um, I didn't have eligibility to play at UCSB anymore. So I'm at Westmont on their team. Next thing I know, I'm coaching UC Santa Barbara because the one thing I'm at, I had one thing on my resume. I was the national coach of Ghana for three months. <laughs> and I mean, the they look, the guy told me this years later, uh, you know, how did I, I go, how did I get that job at UCSB? He goes, well, we remembered you were raising money through concerts. We figured you had, you know, you're creative and you had this ambition and you're energetic. And also the thing that really helped us on your, you know, on my, you know, my resume was, you know, I taught tennis at Muni tennis courts in Santa Barbara and I coached the Ghanaian national team. Wow. So praise God. Just a couple, couple more. I appreciate all your time. Okay. Parents. We have parents listening to the podcast. What advice do you have for parents of bringing up tennis players? Uh, wow, that is a. I'd say no. Yeah, it could be uh, a book. Yeah, that could be Vol a book. volumes. Oh my god, it's. Uh, I think the one thing about parents is it, it's, uh, you know, show them that a lot of love. I guess I used to have a saying about this. Um, my job, like when I was in college, I had my son and my daughter, I taught him, is my, it came always down to, I always wrote it down to me, be their parent, don't be their coach. You know, so that what I eventually did, that was the smartest thing is I got my assistant coaches to coach my uh, kids, is don't be involved with the, your job is to be their parent, it's not to be their coach, it's you teach them life values, and so that's what it all comes in, and it's there to support them, to support them, and you've always heard about the drive home with the kid, and I even found it hard when I was with my kids, but I had been around so many parents as a college coach, you know, that and, and it's seen that and seen on the recruiting and with the national team, who the good parents were and who the bad parents were, that my main thing is all you got to do is just love them for who they are and let that journey, the, the great players, always the parents let them go. And they entrusted them with people where a kid could discern between a coach and a parent. Okay. You can, they can discern that. And it's, you know, a parent, it's, it's a rough job, but you got to be more involved about that soul and, and the person and not the athlete. I remember when Jimmy Connors, his mother passed away, Gloria, and, and she pulled Jimmy off the court. Every time he was getting really excited about tennis when he was a young kid, he said, hey, we got to go. So 
Yeah. And not, there's there's so, so much to being a tennis parent. With um, you're such an upbeat, positive guy, Steve Campbell, your brother-in-law told me that um, uh, Colleen, Steve's daughter, Corey, yeah. your team, you know, they, whatever it was, they were rude. They didn't leave the locker room cleaner than they found it. And Corey heard Uncle Greg uh, <laughs> lose it. So our listeners hear how positive you are, but uh, there's a time where you can actually be the velvet hammer. Yeah, no, you, sometimes you got to be. But as a coach, you have that ability. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. As a, as a parent, when it comes to tennis, you don't have that ability. But as a parent, when they're at home, you have that ability. <laughs> Make that bed, you know, do, do the right things. No, I'm kind of, that's the thing, uh, to be honest with you, as a coach, I have an intense side and a, and a kind of a volatile side. Instant hostility? Not no. hostility, but just like, you know, get kind a of. Switch. Yeah, I have a switch that I know how to use. Yeah, that's good. But I didn't, to be honest with you, I used it probably one out of a hundred times. I, I always felt like, uh, like I said, uh, I always came from a position where I, I, you know, if you're on this team, I love you <laughs> and you got to take it. And sometimes just love is tough, but if right. I care about you and, and, and it came through majority of times, not to say I didn't have problem athletes, but I've done, I had for a while. Oh my gosh. I had on my team, I had Brad Ackerman who won Kalamazoo who left yeah. Pepperdine and he had, a, you know, but we hadn't tried to help him and, and then Barry Buss, um, who wrote this great book out now that's talking about the trials. He went to UCLA and then transferred us, but then he couldn't help. But the thing is, that it's all based on, gosh, if you can do, everyone wants to do something which they love, right? You want to do something you love. And I realized that from the beginning, I did something that I loved. I'd love to do that. I'd love to be a coach. Like I just, I'm retired. I was coached a high school team in Boise, Idaho for the last two years because I couldn't get it out of my blood. You know, so, and you love it. If it's, if it's based on love, the passion is always, it, it, passion is hot. It's, it's, it's boiling. It can warm, but sometimes it can burn. I always try to make sure I didn't take to the point where I was, you know, destroying something with my passion. And, um, you know, oh, there's a great saying about passion. Now I can't remember it, but you, I, uh, <laughs> I know I got it. I don't know how to describe it. No, you, you, you've got <laughs> it. Uh, um, the uh, I learned this from uh, I was in a meeting with Steve Gamble, the GM here, Jay Gamble, general manager of Wintergreen. There's three phases of retirement. Three phases: go, go, slow, go, and no go. <laughs> so I think I think it sounds like you're still a go, go. I'm a go, go. Yeah, I I like I'm, I'm doing this camp with Steve and at Wintergreen, and I'm thrilled. I love doing it. I have a tennis and wine camp in Walla Walla that goes for six weeks with adults and i, I loved i went to walla once tommy fi you know tommy fi i love tom fi tommy fi who came up to our camp he's passed away you know, i know Hunter, yeah i just was with him a few weeks before he passed yeah, he worked at vic braden's uh, amazing guy he was well, one of steve's assistants uh you know, that's how they got connected as he worked for tommy fi yeah amazing yeah. guy yeah, yeah we, you and i know so many people i was uh talking to joey johnson yesterday yeah I said yeah i'm interviewing uh <laughs> greg Patton tomorrow and he goes great guy great guy and i go i go how long have you known him and he goes i used to practice with his team at irvine yes he so did that's a long he played i think either mississippi or mississippi state yeah oh yeah i've known him and now forever and now his son is uh off to ucla he just got back from a mission you, the, you know the gift that tennis gives is our relationships with people we're competitors, we're gladiators, and we're brothers and sisters. 
But isn't it amazing? Like all the, I look, you know, I go on uh, lines and I'm not really big on posting or anything like that. And I think now this day and age, college coaches need to do that. So I kind of miss that, you know, period, which doesn't. But I see all these names and people that, you know, have touched my life that are in tennis that are there. And a sad thing that just happened the other day is Dave Borelli. Yeah. who was the tennis coach at T TCU and also the women's coach at USC was the men's coach at TCU. Great enthusiasm, exuberance and joy for life and for tennis. You know, he just passed. That's a big loss for us. And that's Actually, what Tom was. He, Joey was working with him out in Southern Cal. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. He was a great one. He was a great one. Well-loved. Did he win uh, like and seven out of 14 titles at USC? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he was. He was doing something right. He was doing a lot of the right, and he was incredibly modest. You know, he's a modest guy. He just loved life. He loved people, and he loved coaching. And I think that's what you bring. And you love the people, and so you're going to do everything. You're dedicated to the people to using tennis as a vehicle for them to be a better person, better you know, a better person, a better parent, a better friend, a better competitor. That's what being a human is, being a competitor. Yeah, I mean, so you've got so many great words. The vehicle that ties in with the, the word journey, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Greg Patton has been fantastic. Uh, give Thank me a high five. Oh, you got it, baby. Thank you. This has been an honor. I think you've earned lunch. But, uh, <laughs> Podcast 154. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and this was fantastic. Adios, amigos. Just wave by the camera, Greg. And we're bye, bye, bye. Oh, I didn't know we were being filmed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right.